That's right. And it's the NFL schedule got released and everyone's talking about it like crazy. And Steve Fezzik's made multiple bets. And you're going to get one today edition with Steve Fezzik. This might be our last week remote. We're going to try to be conscientious but bold. Fez, we got an hour of power, of content, of action. And it's really about Fez shining. Now, I will say this. We talked about it recently that you and Mackenzie, researcher pregame.com, were playing a poker game. And it really stemmed from you being, you know, irrationally dismissive of my poker skill. That in hindsight, you should have been, I don't want to say in awe, but, you know, let's just say admiring. And instead, you took a shortcut, a shortcut to thinking, I think it's fair to say. And instead of even playing you, I had you play McKenzie. <laughs> and here's what's fascinating. I just, for the first time, I'm looking at the rundown for the podcast, who happened to be put together, or happened to be put together by McKenzie. And here's some of the topics on there. California versus Florida, MVP NFL notes, week one line surprises, uh, certain road trips that are noteworthy, uh, hot weather teams, cold and cold weather late in the year, etc. All that, but all that is what you would call subordinate. All that you would call <laughs> less than because there can only be one first headline. And literally I look at it and, and all those things are on the list, but it says podcast topics and the first thing Fez versus McKenzie, the pregame poker invitational. That in McKenzie's mind, that is the lead story. McKenzie, would you like to comment? I just thought we could quickly touch on it before we moved on to more you pressing figure, matters. You think, but that's not the way things work. <laughs> is you actually talk about the more important things first, right? <laughs> so this isn't like some like city council meeting in some <laughs> '80s movie where they say, "Well, before we move on to the really important things, uh, Buster here wants to talk about the used car wash." I mean, no. It's you believe in your heart that that's the biggest story of the week. It might be the upset of the century before it's all said and done. Well, that doesn't speak too well of yourself. <laughs> so let's do this. He's forced my hand because at this point, what am I going to do? Pull it back and tease ahead? You know, in fact, I am. This will be the second topic because you can't capitulate to this kind of aggression. <laughs> but I don't want to make the audience wait too long because it is good. So, Faz, I'm going to let you pick one topic other than that, and then we'll do that topic second. Oh, let's talk about Florida versus California and different uh, philosophies. So, so, are you going to do your announcer's voice, or are you going to talk normally? <laughs> I'm going to talk normal. Let's talk Florida versus... I mean, like, <laughs> what what causes you to do that? Like, what goes... Tell, get, walk us... This is more interesting than anything you're going to say. Walk us through what goes through your mind. I'm just juiced up. It's like, what time no, no, is no, it? No, that, it's not about that. Yeah. Because if you're juiced up, it doesn't mean you talk like a, like someone who is from another planet. Right? Mountain Dew does not cause that. I didn't even have one. I'm just having regular Coke. Okay. So it has nothing to do with any of the. <laughs> well, you know, Coke and Mountain Dew pretty much have, you know, I think Mountain Dew have a smidge more caffeine, but not much more. Placebo. So let's just talk. What do you think? Sounds good. So Florida, this is interesting because you don't seem to have much on the politics of all this. What's your take? Well, 
just my take is how diametrically opposed two governors can be. It's really surprising how California Governor Newsom, obviously everyone's at stay-at-home orders. There's a four-phase um, of restrictions that they're going to implement down the road, hopefully. Boy, that, that, sounds, that, that, that just doesn't quite seem American to me. <laughs> Four stages of restrictions? Yes, and and stage three would allow for sports to be played, and then stage four, sports with spectators. And we're not even at stage one. And then you contrast that with Florida and the governor, uh, DeSantis in Florida, saying, hey, anybody, any pro sports that want to play, come on down. We're ready to uh, meet your needs Right now, the, it's just shocking that these two states can be so far apart in what they're willing to partake in right now. So what we're saying from your expert, you figure this is where you have the most expertise to bring to bear, is you're saying that a Democrat from California who is governor and a Republican from Florida who's governor, the idea that they actually disagree politically is shocking to you the fact they disagreed by so much well let me ask you and again this isn't political as much as practice i mean there's a political element to this but there's i'm going to ask this in a practical sense what is your belief about what states should be if you were the governor of fezzikville what would fezzikville be doing right now well fezzikville would be monitoring what the death rate was, what the... No, 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 no. I don't want hypotheticals. What would you be doing today? I would be looking to find ways... Looking to find... So, I mean, you do nothing. No, I would be finding ways to reopen the economy so give selectively. Me, give me an example. What do you mean? This is... I mean, this is... You sound like all the other idiots talking that say nothing. Say something. Well, what I would th- you do? I th- well, well, let's say this. If Governor Newsom was zero uh, and 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 let's say, well... Let's flip it. Is uh, no one should be zero, I guess. So we'll say because the left, you know, whoever it is, will get upset. So let me think how I want to do this. Uh, let's say that you're going to have a score one to a hundred. So there's going to be a two hundred score range. And if you were exactly in the middle between the two, your score would be zero. If you were hundred percent in agreement with the Democrat, you'd be Democrat a hundred, we'll call it, or Republican a hundred. So there's a two hundred point range. Zero means you're even. Where would your the Fezzik party be on this spectrum? Oh, oh my goodness! I'm I I just had a brain fart. Which one is the Democrat? <laughs> what? The the Florida guy is the. I never think in terms of parties, RJ. Just keep talking. I if the. F- the Florida guy is 100, and I would be about as— Well, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. So you don't know if the Florida guy is a Democrat I'm, or Republican? I'm having a mental— Hold on, hold on. We've never done this. Cliffhanger time. It is now 22 minutes or so later, and you won't believe what Steve said after this. But it went off into a tangent. Yeah, RJ's tangent. So when it's not sports, it's not batting, we throw it at the back— Let's just say, if you ever wondered about how dedicated Steve Fezzik is to the game of sports batting, you will wonder no more after you listen to even the beginning of the last segment, rearranged now at the end of the show. Would you agree, Steve, that's the case? Yes. Let's move on 
And maybe I'll let you have a dealer's choice and you'll pick something that you have some expertise in. Let's talk about MVP and the NFL betting. Go ahead. All right. I'm going to make a case. This is going to sound awfully square. I believe it. I think Mahomes at 4-1 to one to win MVP, I think it's good wager, RJ. So hold on a second. You just did this on Straight Out of Vegas. You didn't say it was awfully square to start. Then I disagreed with it. Now, all of a sudden, your delivery's different. Haven't we talked about that? That you can't. Yes. Like, like don't make me hide my takes from you. St- knock loud and stand proud. That's uh, all I'm going to say. All right. Let me stand proud by why this is a good wager. So, no, But if you change your mind, that's fair. Do you believe it's, do you think it's a good wager? I, I, I absolutely do. Continue. All right. One thing I didn't talk about straight out of Vegas, when you're picking the MVP, you're not just picking a guy who's going to have a great year. His team has to have a great year also. So if you look at the last two MVPs, Mahomes won two years ago. Well, Kansas City was, had the home field advantage in the AFC playoffs. Last year, Lamar Jackson won the MVP. Well, Baltimore had the best record in the NFL last year. So you really need to forecast a team that's going to have a really good record. Well, okay, so more than the last two years. McKenzie, look at the, let's just go back mm, maybe five more. And just give me the number of wins, regular season wins, the last five chan- uh, MVPs prior to Mahomes and Lamar. So it certainly helps Kansas City is lined at 11.5 wins, along with Baltimore. They're forecast to have the most wins in the NFL right off the bat. Kansas City is going to be more than likely very good this year. I th- I'm going to make the case Mahomes is going to have a better year, a much better year this year than he had last year. And, and we're talking perception here, right? Um, because it's mo- when you talk about games being missed, those are counting stats. And, I, and I'm not saying that's invalid. I'm saying, let's be clear, we're not talking efficiency as much. Because why would you think he's going to have a better year efficiency-wise? Because he had to play at oh, least Jesus two— Jesus Christ. Don't tell me how hurt he was in those games. Oh, the Indianapolis and Houston oh, games. With his, with his, I'm not making anything up. If it's you go back and watch crap. those fourth quarters, he, he, could, he could not move well. It's not bull crap at all. You're all wrong. Right. Well, You're wrong. Well, let's say this. Was he? If, if, am I wrong that he was affected greater than zero? Probably. Was he affected in a way for a handful? Of, we're talking about a couple of quarters, and then over the course of 16 times four quarters in a year, that those quarters that he was what? What percentage compromise was he? He's probably 75% of, of his normal that, that self. That seems way low, but let's say that's true. And how many quarters was he that compromised? It was – the, the mm-hmm. real, the, you don't like this. He match, was the most compromised two quarters, the fourth quarter of the Indy game, the fourth quarter of the Houston game. So what's 16 times four? 64. Okay. So it's uh, two sixty-fourths of the year. He was 25% compromised. Yes. Come on, dude. That's where he was the most compromised. So you can scream I'm wrong because you've been getting like lambasted on this pod. That, that just made it worse. I, I, it's not like he was healthy in both those games the entire way, but he re-injured his ankle in both games. Okay, so what was he, 88% for another six quarters? Yes. It's a tiny little thing. Go ahead. All right. Missing Tyreek Hill for essentially five games. Tyreek Hill was out for four games, and in the game against the Chargers in Mexico City, he didn't have a catch. He yeah, went out of the game so early. Let's do this. I don't want to go through quarters. I honestly don't. Give us the general handicap. Yeah. So what's the over-under, and be ready to bet this, the Tyreek Hill, the number of games he plays this year? 14 and a half. Okay. And he missed how many? He missed four. So if he missed two games this year, you believe he would be missing more games than you expect? Yes. Ooh. 
you know, I don't want to force you to bat, but I if you because that's because I guess if I'm going to force you to make a number, I should have to lay 110, and then it's maybe fair. But the reason I would bat it is because there's a decent chance he can sit week, you know, the last right, week. Right. Right. So would you still want me to bet this? I absolutely. I think it's a good line. Fourteen and a half. All right. Let's bet a nickel. All right. I got I'll, I'll lay I'll lay the one ten. I oh that's, that's I mean, very generous. If, I, if I'm forcing you to make the line, it's only fair. All right. So Tyreek Hill over fourteen and a half games. Is your bet? Yes. Mine's under. This is a sixteen game season, right? If it's less than a 16-game season, I would think it would be a null and void. Oh, let's think about that. If it's a six-game season, I'm not paying. I'm thinking about this whole 17 game. That doesn't start this year, does it? No. We sure? We're certain. Okay. We do get seven playoff teams from each conference. No, that's right. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. and then the next year is supposed to be. Okay. Um, Yeah, if they're – let's do this. If – let's both have to – if it's less than 16 games, we both have to agree on the bat – because it will ha- if that happens, it will happen before the season starts, and and if he's injured, where he would let's agree to let's be fair because I'm going to be fair to you, is if he's injured in a way that he's going to miss at least two games. I'm I'm you know at the time the season shortened, I'm still winning the bet. But if they shorten the season, I think it's fair to say we both have to agree on a new number that's the same ratio of 14 and a half to 16. And as long as the hat, you know, as long as the number makes sense. You know, we can choose to bet that or not. So we'll, let's just say the bet gets resurfaced and we can decide. That sounds good. All right. So, you know, that's only fair. I just was making sure it wasn't 17 games. All right. So you're saying if he misses a second game, that's – wow. Okay, go ahead. He may, It seems like he's been suspended multiple years too. <laughs> yes. Um, what What happens if uh, the season gets delayed for three weeks but the, and, and, Ty, and Tyreek Hill um, has a hammy and he would have been out but he plays all 16 games and the season doesn't start till October? Uh, I think I have to eat that because uh, to me, if the season gets uh, abridged, then if he's hurt at that point, I win. If if he's hurt bad enough, otherwise we renegotiate the terms. So that wouldn't meet that condition, right? Is the season got delayed? He was hurt, but the season didn't get abridged, and they played 16 games. So it matters how many he plays. Yes. See, I'm, listen. That's you're how, reasonable. That's how you're I'm reasonable, so man. I'm so unbeatable in debates because I'm reasonable. Most people aren't. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, Mackenzie came through with your MVPs. Should I uh, go ahead and read them off? You, no, that's wins? the last thing I want. Mackenzie, read them off. So you got Lamar Jackson at 14 wins last year. Patrick, yeah, we got that part. Go ahead. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes had 12. Got that part. 17, Brady had 13. All right. 2016, Ryan only had 11, the low man on this list. All right. Uh, Newton, 15 wins in 2015. 2014, Rodgers had 12 wins. Uh Average for the last 10 years was 12.9 wins. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with you, Steve. If you're not, you know, obviously, it'd be interesting to see the last guy that won it. Keep going back, McKenzie, is find me the first guy that won less than 10 games. All right. I'll so single digits. Um, my, my gut feeling is you can win with 10, you can win with 11, but you have a better chance of winning with 12 and 13. But I would say the following. You can't win if it's a stale story. And that, to me, is the key. Why else would Lamar Jackson, who won it last year, be any anywhere near the underdog that he is against Mahomes? When you just won it last year, unless you believe Tennessee somehow has figured out how to stop 
Boston or, or Baltimore and every team's going to follow that, then Lamar had the better season last year. Lamar's team had the better year, you know, in the regular season. And why in the heck, you know, give me the current odds, four to one, and what's and what's Lamar? I got it here, RJ. One second. Lamar is seven plus seven fifty. I mean, I'm really getting another plus three fifty for Lamar. Well, I think you nailed it. That makes it. no the, sense. The, I think you described the incumbent has a major disadvantage. It's not just the incumbent. It's any stale story. Right. Okay. And you don't think Patrick Mahomes is good as stale? I don't think it's as stale because he didn't well, win last wait, year. It's not as stale as the guy. So he won the MVP his first year playing, his second year in the league. He won the Super Bowl and the MVP of that. And you think, you know what story sounds interesting? Patrick Mahomes is good. Well, I think that it's universally, uh, the narrative is that Mahomes is, is the best quarterback. And, there's, okay. and I don't think anyone's debating it right, right now. So then how's that a fresh story? Steve, this is where you get in trouble. Just accept I'm right and say you don't think it really matters. Then I'm going to say, okay, why you're, doesn't you're, it? You're right. That doesn't help him. It's not a fresh story. I'm going to ask it, if it doesn't. I'm saying it almost disqualifies him. Because it, it will make it harder for him to win. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So it doesn't feel like if you're playing the favorite that has an intrinsic disadvantage against him, that's a value-laden bet. I believe it is, given that it's no, four to one. I don't, I don't, is. I don't know why it wouldn't be like like a ridiculous two to one. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, how often is it that, that someone wins an MVP? Uh, let's say even within two, uh, where two and three years, right? That's exactly what Mahomes would do, right? For you to win your bet. Well, I'm looking at the list of okay. the last decade. Go ahead. And it appears the only guy that won twice. Well, when you say appears, you mean it is the It is. Case. The only guy that won twice was Brady, and he did it 2010 and 2017. Okay, so. Oh, I'm, excuse me. Rodgers did it in 2011 and 2014. Okay, so two and three years, how many instances? None. Okay, and keep going back. Our list only goes down to 2002. Let, right let me, when you say R, do you think we have a proprietary list yeah. of MVP winners? All right, so I'm looking at it. We got Manning falls into this, and then Kurt Warner, and that started in 99. So it's fair to say this century, there's been one time, one instance in 20 years. I guess if you're not counting Kurt Warner, you can't start until 2002. But one instance since 2002 in which a player has won it twice in three years. Yes. Doesn't seem like the chalk to me. Especially considering the fact that we we know for whatever reason, you know, the political side of things is Lamar who is the kind of guy that some of the draft people said should be playing wide right receiver, that, that him being exalted is something that, that seems to fit the political ethos of a lot of sports writers, right? I mean, in hindsight, they had some truth to what they said, but I remember like after two or three weeks when the ringer was talking about Lamar Jackson like he was the best quarterback in the league, and you had him at the time like 29th in your rankings. Now, I think 29th was bad, I think that the idea that he had proven he's one of the best at that point was absurd. But I don't think it's a coincidence that he won the MVP by a vote, Lamar, 
that was far outside of what he should have won. I mean, there should have been some disagreement, you know, and it was just like, I mean, because I remember week 14, 13, there were so serious debates about, uh, I think it was Drew Brees was the other one, right? Yeah, and Drew Brees had a very good December. I don't recall how, how big his margin was of victory. Yeah, well, but well it, Drew Brees did miss some of the season. I think Russell Wilson was the co-favorite for. Oh, you're right. I'm yeah, sorry. That, you're right. Yeah, thank because you. Because the five Bridgewater games. Yeah. yeah, I mean Brees had a good year, but yeah, you're right. And Russell Wilson at this point has never, ever, gotten a first place vote in the MVP. And apparently, Mackenzie, you had this in the cards. Wagner, the D bat or the linebacker, yep. has gotten a vote, <laughs> and one other uh, Seattle player. You want to look that up? Yeah. Yeah. So, now, isn't it interesting? I mean, last time I checked, Russell Wilson's black, Lamar's black, Mahomes is black. So, the whole black quarterback thing, at least mathematically, you know, it, it's. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a celebration that it seems like that we are being open to whomever's the best quarterback. I think it's the case could be made – I don't think in the past they made it where they thought so-and-so was better, but they kept him on the bench. I think just when every quarterback almost needs faith. And when I think in the past, when a black quarterback had a bad run, it was like, of course, that's what people thought, some people. And then when a white quarterback had a, you know, Terry Bradshaw was still getting benched in 1974, you know, his fifth year. And he ended up winning four Super Bowls. If, if he was black, would he have kept getting all those chances? I don't know. I don't know about Chuck Noll specifically, but I think you could imagine a case he wouldn't have. I think that's the real progress. But I do believe that Russell Wilson, who you know doesn't strike me as, uh, let's just say he doesn't check the boxes as well when it comes to the political side of this debate as Lamar. And because of that, it feels like there's a bias towards him. And thus, why would he be any less likely? Let's forget any other aspect of this debate other than why would Lamar be any less likely than Mahomes? Well, just what we discussed about no, him. Getting, I don't understand what you mean. Him getting the award last year. Okay, but so what you believe? What you believe is this is interesting. That the narrative of him winning a second year in the row is a bad one. So much it is almost disqualifying. But Mahomes winning the MVP, then winning the Super Bowl MVP, and then winning the MVP again in three successive years, that isn't. Correct, because I feel that the Super Bowl victory almost validates the fact that, hey, this guy is just light years. Well, how many su- uh, that's interesting. How many Super Bowl winners won the MVP the next year? Aaron Rodgers in 2011 comes to mind. But to, what, So 2011 was the year after they beat the Steelers. Yeah, where they won 15 games and then lost to the Giants in the okay, first playoff Okay, so game. one, continue. You know, take a gander. I mean, obviously you're going to look at the, the um, Peyton Mannings. Brady in 2017 just beat the Falcons the year before. Yeah, so let's assume it's three or so this century. All right, so three out of 20 doesn't seem very good. All right. Not at plus 400, no. Not necessarily. Yeah, and again, not that that... I mean, what I'm saying is it doesn't feel like that's a predict... I couldn't imagine the handicap being, hey, he won the Super Bowl, so I think he's going to win the MVP this year. History says that's not the handicap, right? Sure, sure. So my point is this. 
if they do, if there if I am correct that there's uh, the, there's a political side to the love of Lamar. I'm not saying Lamar didn't have a hell of a year. I'm saying the way it was assessed might have been a little bit much. If there is, then giving it to him two years in a row will be like he's a made man. That there can no longer be a debate. Look at look at the problem Cam's having. I've never seen the media get more indignant about a player not getting signed. When Tebow didn't get signed, I didn't hear any of this. If anything, it was a validation he wasn't any good. Yeah, the only thing that compares at all is Kaepernick, I think. Yeah, and with Kaepernick, yeah, you're right. Is certainly there's more talk about Kaepernick not getting signed. Though it felt like at the time the smarter people said, listen, this guy is a borderline, you know, it feels like even the year after, smart people could have said, meaning I don't think this is stupid, hey, he's maybe the 25th best quarterback, maybe he's the 35th. So he's either a bad starter or a really good backup. You know, he was probably what Andy Dalton is today, you know. And I think you could make the case that guy should have a job. But you could also make the case that, well, the difference between him and some other backup it's small enough that the drama, the disruption might not be worth it. The idea that all 32 teams think that, huh, that, you know, I'm not sure I, you know, that I could believe a lot of teams thinking that. I'm not sure about all 32. So, but that said, I haven't heard anyone talk about Cam as if he's not an MVP level quarterback in the media. And they're all just putting their hands up, exacerbated that he isn't signed. And to me, they are going to look at Lamar and say, huh, Lamar has a couple bad years, a couple injured years. All of a sudden, he's going to be out of the league. Let's validate him. That feels a lot more likely to me. Let's say if they have the same season. I do think Mahomes is better. So thus, I think Mahomes has a better chance of statistically having a better year. But if they both had the exact same year, I would bet Lamar like crazy. Oh, no doubt. So, so what you're saying is there's actually a political bias against Mahomes. Because if there's a political advantage, or at minimum, he ha- he's at a political deficit versus Lamar. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm here. Yep. <laughs> it, I, you, make, you make a strong case. It, I just don't. It's almost, I can, it's almost like, you know how they say you've got to knock the champion out? It's almost like I can only scenario I can see is if Mahomes has one of the or probably the greatest season any quarterback's ever had and it's by like 15 percent then it will be like you can't debate it you know if it's a debate if if the the debate shows are saying who had a better year and there's a conversation he won't win if if it's just him sitting at the mountaintop then yeah he'll win yeah if he throws for 5,000 yards and he's number one in QBR again you know yeah I think he got to throw for like 5,500 oh 5,000 I think he'll do it didn't do it for Jameis Winston. He lost his job. He, he, he did throw 30 interceptions. Oh, but the caveat, here comes the caveat. You know, one thing about Russell Wilson, I don't think Wilson can effectively win, RJ, and here's why. Is that you're talking about counting stats. Seattle just runs the ball too much. So two years ago, Seattle, on a percentage basis, ran the ball more than any team in the NFL. Last year, they were top six in terms of run plays versus pass plays. So Wilson just doesn't accumulate enough yards and enough touchdowns to wind up winning the MVP, I think. Yeah, I think it's a disadvantage, and we've seen it so far. He hasn't gotten a vote. I also think, though, that the narrative can be 
if they end up having like, and you know, Mike Lombardi, and let me, you know, this will be fun. And Kenzie, do me a favor. So, did, did were you looking up anything, or were you good? Barry Sanders in 1997 won the MVP with only nine wins. Okay, so literally this century, it's been double-digit wins. Yep. Okay. So, Fez, that reinforces your point. If a team is at 12 or 12 and a half, the odds of them, you know, think of the bell curve being below 10 is a lot less. If a team's at nine and a half, then it's like less than half the time they're even going to get to that threshold. Yeah, they won't even be under consideration. That's why, you know, one quarterback that I was thinking about, I wanted to ask you about this because I know you— Kyler Murray? I didn't consider Kyler oh. Murray because Arizona's only supposed to win seven. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. <clears throat> Dak Prescott, 14 yeah, to one. Favorite. He's 14 to one, though. Yeah. Listen, it's the perfect storm. If you think he's going to have a good year, I, I think it's a hell of a bet because it's going to be a story. I mean, all these people want to do is build a story. Like, you know, they don't want it to be wrong. But, boy, they don't care if it's close to being wrong. They just want it to be a story. And that's who votes, right? The media. Sure. Uh, I mean, with uh, listen, let's say this. If he doesn't sign the extension, I like it a lot more. Because the whole season is going to be a referendum on him. And thus, if, they have a, if he has a good season, it will be a monster attention. In fact, if he doesn't sign, I'm going to bet that. And you think he would do everything he could to put his best foot forward, right? In terms of, yeah. you know, studying the playbook and, and fa- let's face it. Here's a guy who was second in the league in yards and he was fourth in QBR last year, but the, Dallas only won eight games. Well, they're supposed to win 10. They're the fifth highest season win team right now, RJ. Yeah. I, here's what I know. That just in the last couple of years, and this is more Cowboys related, but just in the last couple of years, I think we've gotten to the point where the old, you know, that place is so popular, no one goes there anymore. You know, the opposite, that person's so underrated, they become overrated. And I think Dallas, you know, if you look at the Pythagorean wins, however you want to look at it, look at his net, you know, the net yards per play. I forget. What's your estimate of what Dallas should have been? Ten and six? Ten and six, yeah. It feels like they're getting more mileage out of being eight and eight when they should have been ten and six than if they would have been ten and six. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, like, why are they better this year? Because of the draft? We're going to go back to they, that, Canard? They get one wide receiver, and they weren't oh weak, and they weren't weak at wide receiver already. Yeah. I mean, is Zeke any younger? And Zeke did not look all that impressive. That's his numbers, point. his numbers were good last year, right? But well, anyone, I don't think they were good. His efficiency wasn't good at all. When you when you actually, I I, I think he, I, I forget what he averaged four point well, what per carry. Luckily, but, it was Google. Yeah. Sorry. But to me, I, I'm not saying. Yeah, you know, here's what I know. The chickens have to come home to roost, and the idea. That you can oh, really, this is a game, the NFL, of what are you, what is the net value, the true value of what you buy to what you spend? If I get a punter that should be making $3 million a year, but I'm paying him 2.7, I just picked up 300 k 
And literally the aggregation of that, those edges, is what builds a good team. Because someone was saying, you know, because the debate went this week of like, ah, you can't spend, you know, Stephen Jones said uh, 14.9% of the salary cap or something. And it's like, well, we've got uh, Matt uh, <laughs> Matt Ryan here, and uh, he's a 15.2. But are you telling me Matt Ryan uh, gave up that 28-3 to lead? because It's like, idiot, you don't think having a great DN pass rusher that they would have paid with that three, four, five, six, seven million, whatever it was, probably not three, is you don't think that could have helped maybe in the second half? It's like that's the whole point. The And someone goes, sample size, too small. No, it's exactly correct, meaning that there's a thousand things that can happen any given season, and, and, and it's so much randomness on who's going to win. Thus, over the course of 32 teams, there's going to be an element of the ones who are doing it right are going to have, you know, the, the better prepared I am, the luckier I get type things happen. Is it any coincidence that Belichick seems to win a lot of close games? Shocker. Right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying every individual game or even every individual Super Bowl, but over the course of 10 years, there's 320 separate teams effectively going for it. And if you looked at – now, listen, there's no way to do this analysis because it's hard to come up with the exact value of what each player should be paid. But if God came down and gave the true value and then you took that versus the contract and there was a net margin, who, whatever teams had the best net margin – Should win the most games. Should win the most games. And I think in general that's the case. The tricky part of it is quarterback's margin – You know, quarterback should be paid so much – that for a while, it was just having a good quarterback. That literally, if you got a great deal on a quarterback, if you got Carson Wentz, you could make a whole lot of mistakes, right, for the Eagles and still have a winning team. Exactly. Or, and that's another way to think of it. You get to take some long shots. And what I know for sure is, if you look at Dallas's actions, and they're going to players that were first-round picks five years ago and crap like that, they're playing lottery tickets. When does someone play a lottery ticket when he needs to get lucky to have enough? I think that that is Dallas's message to the world is they're making signings. I don't think now if they had everything in place and then they were taking super cheap lottery tickets like Belichick does. Okay. But, and again, I know it's hard to objectively tell the difference, but by every, I don't know the third cornerback for Dallas. I'm just not that kind of handicapper. So I listen to people very closely. And the talk was hey, if this, you know, a lot of, if this guy works out, I think Dallas is going to be okay. And it's like a guy, it feels like it's a five to one shot that he's going to work out, right? It's not that this guy could then make a, D, a good D line even better. It's like we need this long shot to come in. I mean, when you, I mean, and Steve, I know you follow the players a little bit more than me, but you're not a player guy either. When you look at Dallas, it's hard to make the case that they lost their center, who was maybe their best lineman, one of the Frederick, right? Yeah, one, yeah, one of the couple best, a minimum. He retired unexpectedly. I mean, where's the case that they're better? That uh, Gallup continues to improve dramatically, and so well, first of all, there's no case that someone's going to improve dramatically. That's the outlier. 
Yeah, right. that's that, that that's certainly true. He did come on. He's he was the number two wide receiver for Dallas. Became a number one along with Cooper, and so this offense could really be something special. Stat? What was his stats last year? He was a thousand yard receiving guy. We'll look it up. Yeah. By the way, I look I looked up uh, Zeke. He was four and a half yards per carry last year. Career average four point six. And he, how many how many passing receiving yards did he have? He had four twenty uh, the year before. He had five sixty seven. So he was down a little on pass reception yards. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I don't love the eye test. I think it's hard to say that 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 he had a uh, that he exceeded expectations. Right, so when, I, I agree, especially considering from his own quotes after one giant game where he had a big stat, stat game, he actually said, "RJ, I don't think I, I I broke a tackle all game long." So some big holes for him to run through. Uh, Gallup had 1,107 reception yards last year. Yeah, I mean that's a good number. The um, to me, last thing on Dallas, and then we can kind of talk about Dak when it comes to these quarterbacks. Uh. I what I know is this: they're overpaying everybody. In the end, that doesn't work. Can they find a year where they rearrange it where it all works? Maybe, <clears throat> but <clears throat> my opt- excuse me, my optimism for Dallas in the next five years is not good, and that's part of the reason I believe Dak is disinclined to want to stay there, right? Because paying everyone else a lot makes him want to get overpaid, and then it just the pop- problem perpetuates itself. All right, so GitHub had this Super Bowl starting quarterbacks percentage of salary cap. So this is the loser and the winner going back to 2012. So Patrick Mahomes, 3% of the cap, Garoppolo, 10%. So the threshold is 14.5. That there's only been, there's been zero winning quarterbacks and only one participating quarterback in the Super Bowl that's been over 14.5. But let's do this. Let's look at Tom Brady, who is the GOAT by all counts, and let's eliminate him. His ranges were 13.5%, in all his four Super Bowls since 2012. So, you know, above 10, well, from 9 to 14. Okay. But he's the best player of all time, so it's hard to say you're overpaying for him. Peyton Manning might have been the best regular season quarterback of all time. I think he probably was. Um, He made two Super Bowls. He was 14.5% and 12.5%. So other than those, the two of the five best quarterbacks of all time, does anyone disagree with that? Nope. Nope. All right. I'm going to read the percentage of the cap quarterbacks were that made the Super Bowl. Mahomes, 3. Jared Goff, 4.7. Nick Foles, 1%. Remember, even if you add in Carson Wentz, it would be a low number. He was on his rookie deal. Here's the sore thumb. Matt Ryan, 18.4%. Cam Newton, 10.1%. Russell Wilson, 0.7%. Russell Wilson, 0.6%. Joe Flacco, 7.1%. Kaepernick, 0.9%. So if we go through the winners now from 2012 and skipping Manning, or I'm sorry, Skip and Manning and Brady. So in 2012, Flacco won at 7.1%. 2013, Wilson won at 0.6%. 2014, it was Brady. 2015, it was Manning. 2016, it was Brady. 
2017, it was Nick Foles at 1%. 2018, it was Brady. 2019, it was Patrick Mahomes at 3%. So really what we're saying is, and I think people are confusing this, it's not about 15.0 or 14. It's about you either have a top five quarterback of all time, and then you can pay him 12 to 15%, or you better have a cheap quarterback. Now, Flacco at 7.1 being, is there a middle ground? Well, he certainly was that run because he was amazingly good that run. But he hasn't been the rest of his career. But in general, the guys like Dak, that if you were the most sympathetic Dak guy in the world, where do you, like if you look at Dak with every positive assessment, who's behind, he's behind Mahomes. Behind Wilson. Behind Jackson, behind Watson, and behind Breeze. Yeah, I could almost see Breeze. I get it. He hasn't shown it yet, but Breeze today with his age, you could almost say that I put Dak ahead. In fact, if you gave me like plus 150, who's going to have a better QBR, Dak or Breeze? Or in fact, you give me a plus 125, I take it. I'll take Dak, QBR, over Breeze, plus 125. You want it? No. So not that clear of a call, Splitting is it? Splitting hairs real right. close. Yeah. So let's say we're giving him every benefit of a doubt. I think with Lamar, let's just say this. If we're saying for this year, I think Lamar is clearly better. If we say the next five years QBR, I'll take Dak. I don't believe Lamar's going to be able to keep this up. Well, he's going to get hit too many times. Well, yeah, whatever. The, yeah, maybe. Maybe people figure, figure it out. Figure him out, yeah. You know, now, the optimist will say, imagine if he starts being able to throw better. And that's possible, too. I just think history tells us that's the unlikely result. But no one's debating Dak. Do you notice no one's debating Dak on the list with Manning and Brady? The debate is, is he the most optimistic fifth-best quarterback in the league? Yeah, is he, is he Matt Ryan? And let's face it, you see well, it. no. I'm saying that I, I saying if we're I think saying is he Matt Ryan is a reasonable middle ground, but I'm saying even if you're positive towards mm. him, he's not Deshaun Watson, he's not Mahomes, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. Like who, who, if if Lamar's got question marks like he does, if Breeze has question marks because of his age. Read your list. Oh, Russell. Yeah. So I think the best that can be is four. And I think that's giving him every benefit of the doubt. Agreed. Right. And I'm saying I don't believe he's four. I'm yeah, saying you're, you're, it would take some really creative, creative parameters and assumptions to get him into the top four. No doubt. Yeah. And, but I think he can't get past. There's no way he's better than Wilson. There's no way he's better than Mahomes. There's no way he's better than Watson for a given year. We agree. And I also think he's probably no way better than Lamar for a given year right now. So I just think Lamar, the question is when does that train end? I don't know, right? I don't think last one, one playoff loss is indicative of very much. But it could be. I, you know. So I, I, to me, I don't see a Dak in this list. I see a Dak make the Super Bowl. Jimmy Garoppolo, Jared Goff, you know, um, and I'm talking about now a Dak that's getting paid big. 
Because you might say, well, RJ, what's the difference? It's the same deck. It's about the other three players you get with that money. Right? And now that we're up to 30-some million, think about that. 10 million a player gets you a mighty good left tackle and a mighty good cornerback and a mighty good linebacker. I mean, imagine. Or an edge rusher. Sure. Yeah. 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 Tight end. (laughs) Bears got some extra ones. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Is you could have three Pro Bowl level guys and a rookie, you know, and Mahomes. Or just so those four or Dak. You know, that's. A great way to think of you could have the best punter and the best kicker along with the really well, you good got defender. the best punter and kicker for a lot less than 10 mil. Exactly. Right? And you can go ahead and pick up some stud shutdown corner. Yep. So, I mean, you know, corners, the best corners, 14, 15, but you can get like the third, fifth, sixth best corner. Look at the corner list of getting paid. I'm, get, I'm get betting the fifth best corner makes about 10 million or mo- the fifth highest paid corner. So, that's a uh, fourteen million for ten. That gets you to the fourteenth. Oh, okay, all right. But obviously, the question becomes: Where's the sweet spot? Maybe we pay thirteen, right? And then there's another guy we pay seven. So whatever it is, you get you get a lot of player for that that thirty extra million. And I just don't see. And and if Dak was a super duper duper super, like. This guy is going to be the face of the franchise, and we're going to make billions just from that. And I can see having some faith in him. Like, I look at a guy like Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan had the time where he was probably the best player in the league. Now, it's, you know, he was with Kobe, he was with LeBron, you know, early, late. And you could maybe make the case he was never the best player, but you know what? He was never not. He had about 10-plus years. He was one of the three best players every year. But you know what? Duncan was massively valuable the last, uh, you know, when they beat Miami that last year time. And he wasn't even close to one of the 20 best players in the league at that point. So if you got a guy that you think you're going to want there even when he's older, a guy like Duncan, it's hard to put a price on him. If you think that that's your and, – and I'll say the same thing about Brady. I don't like a lot of the things Brady's doing now, but Brady pre this – and maybe he was forced into this. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't. But all I've heard more stories about Brady in the last six months than I had in the last six years. And wasn't the whole premise is do your job and not worry about Instagram or whatever? Feels like there's a lot of Instagram going on. I don't recall him blowing on conches and uh, having players run and report to duty. Yes. So I don't even know what you're talking about. Say it again. Oh, uh, the, the video with him and Gronk, you know, running forward with the birds flying and saying Gronk reporting to duty, and Brady's blowing a conch, um, a seashell. So you saying you're saying something that the word, when you say conch, conch, that's supposed to be a word? Conch. What? What? It's from Lord of the Flies. What do you? How would you pronounce conch? I don't know, but I never try to say those words. I have no idea how to pronounce them. I thought it was conch. It could be, but you're saying conch, conch. <laughs> like you kept saying it, like you were choking. Like I thought you were drowning. It's not a word I use very often. <laughs> I mean, I guess when you go to the beach. I mean, I guess when you go to California, like you do, you encounter a lot of seashells. <laughs> And Monterey. Very good. Carmel, yeah. Carmel, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Like I just brought you your freaking tea. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I'd pour out tea in your eye. Hot. 
<laughs> All right. So I'm pessimistic on Dallas. So it's hard to be optimistic on Dak. But maybe not because maybe I think I'm, there's a 55% chance they underperform. But if they do overperform, it feels like the narrative part of this is so locked into it. And America's team is certainly going to get all kinds of coverage if they do well. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's more than America's team, though. It's that he's the focus of the offseason, him and Brady. Yes. Now, what's interesting with Brady is, and we'll do this maybe next week, there was a big debate on Get Up about the top five quarterbacks and his Dak in the top five, right? So some people had Carson Wentz. Some people had Deshaun Watson, but everyone had Brady in the top five. Now, where do you have Brady? 19. That's fascinating. I mean, it's like everybody. It's not just the dummies on the the shows. It's everybody. I wonder what kind of bet. We should talk. You know, we should talk a casino. Which casino do you, you know, is more, most open, do you think, to putting up a prop? Circa. Why don't you add, say over under on QBR for Brady? Yeah, I'll talk to him. And if it go as in his slotted position, and you know, just have it written in the rules. If he doesn't qualify, it's under. Yeah, I know they got some Brady numbers up. Um, let me pull those up. Just to... yeah, but the counting stats aren't right. Yeah, because they're gonna throw. That's all about how much they throw. The question is how efficient is he? Yeah, and they're gonna throw a lot, obviously. Yeah. So or he'll get hurt. And Brady led the league in pass attempts last year. Didn't really help his efficiency numbers at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if you look at his counting stats, they probably weren't so bad. I mean, especially yards, if he's passing the most, even if he doesn't have a great yards per attempt. So if you had to guess what Circa would put up, well, no, you know, that is, I don't like that. Let me ask you this. What number would you go over? Or check that. Would you go under? So where would be the point where you'd say, shit, he's going to do better than that? So 18 and a half, what do you do? I go under. And the theory being? That Tampa has so many weapons now with Gronk that even though Brady is not. So have you adjusted the 19 with Gronk? I did not. That's interesting because I've never thought of that. Is, is, is the quarterback ranking supposed to account for the, the player with the team, with his weapons, with the coach? That doesn't feel like what the quarterback ranking should be. But the, it does actually. It's interesting. Maybe there's got to be two numbers. Yeah, because right? I'd be naive not to say, hey, I expect Brady's going to have a little bit of a better year with Gronk. Though I would make the case – the high volume of passing hurts your QBR. I bet in general, if we did a study. Oh, see, that actually might. The part that would hurt me here is if someone's passing well, they'll tend to pass more. I think that the incremental passes, meaning after, so, you know, whatever the league average is. I think in a given game or a given season, the passes that go beyond the average are going to have or have a drag on them. The more you pass, the harder it is to pass. I agree in the second half because so often you're passing when your opponent knows you have to pass and then interceptions come. Yeah, but that's even a different concept, right? It's a valid one for sure, what you're saying. I'm not sure how we'd even... It's almost like if you took a guy that threw a bunch and could put him through a simulation where he threw 15% less... His QBR goes up. Yes. Right. But the guys that pass more effectively pass more because 
that the coaches want to call passing plays. So I'm not sure how the chicken and the egg that would work. But what I know is if you tell if you told me Brady was going to throw an average amount this year or Brady was going to throw 20% more than average. I would want to if I could have a simulation between those two, I'd take the QBR and the average. The fact that Tampa Bay is probably going to throw a lot, I don't think that helps Brady's QBR. Yeah, I agree and I like I said, I think there's the causality of if Tampa Bay somehow goes 12 and 4, Brady's probably not throwing as much because they have the yeah, lead. Yeah, if they have the lead late. But nowadays, I'm not even sure that's valid anymore. Teams just keep passing. They just throw more conservative passes. That's a great point. All yes. Right. Well, they're still going to pass, but they're passing to move the chains more than passing to score. So, are you going to give me an answer? 14 and a half. Really? So, 15 and a half, you go under. Yes. But you say 19. That seems incongruent. Tampa Bay is just so loaded with weapons. So your your quarterback rankings doesn't account for the team? They do not. So, all right, so the Gronk wouldn't matter either. I think we probably need three lists, one that accounts for the team, one that doesn't, and one that says if you were redrafting and it accounts for age. I agree. That'd be interesting. Okay, we got some best bets coming up. What do you want to talk about, Steve? We got one more topic in us other than best bets. Let's talk travel. All right. So, yeah, I think, why don't I do this? I'm going to let you have the floor. I can't lie. I'm going to get up and get a cookie. So you go for at least two minutes. And I want you to just brain dump on the schedule. And you've got a, actually a best bet for us, right? On on week one? I have a best bet season win, but I can give you a bonus best well, bet week one. Well, why don't we one. do this? Hold the season win unless you think it's going to move in the next week. Okay. Do that next week, and let's you know it feels more topical to have the week one, right? Sounds good. All right, but first you're gonna just give us all that physic wisdom. If we somehow lived with you and we drove down to the dispensary on Friday night and we said, "Tell us about the schedule," this is what we would get. Go. All right, let's talk about travel. Been well publicized, Baltimore. Really, really favorable travel. Only have to travel 6,300 miles. What makes it even more favorable for Baltimore is that week two they go to Houston. So to Houston and back is about 2,500 miles of their travel. All things being equal, want to get your longest road trip up and out of the way early in the year. So after week two, Baltimore does not leave the Eastern time zone. Super advantageous. Let's talk about teams that are not advantageous that have the most travel. So Seattle, 29,000 miles. The Rams are being reported at 26,000. San Francisco also 26,000, but this is misleading. Seattle is really screwed by the schedule, and here's why. The NFL didn't give Seattle any trips where they get to stay east and can minimize this travel. They're truly going to fly 29,000 miles. Let's contrast that with the Rams and San Francisco. Well, the Rams are east weeks two at Philly, and then week three they're at Buffalo. So I would imagine, I would expect the Rams are going to stay east, and so their actual travel is not going to be 26,000. It'll be 22,000. San Francisco, they're east weeks two and three at the two New York teams. So because of that, instead of traveling 26,000 miles, they're only going to have to travel 21,000 miles. And so let's think about this 49er schedule. How advantageous is this? The 49ers last year stayed east not once but twice, weeks one and two. If you recall, they went in and crushed the Bengals in week two after playing in Tampa week one. So they spent the week in Ohio, I believe in Youngstown, Ohio. And then 
late in the year, they went ahead after losing to Baltimore. They stayed east, and they beat the Saints week 14. So now we've got a situation where the 49ers don't have to travel that extra 6,000 miles. They'll stay in, in the New York area. And they've had, they have experience not once but twice having um, long uh, extended uh, training camps during the season, essentially, where they stayed east last year with success. I would argue the 49ers are uniquely qualified to handle this sort of thing. And the fact they get to play in the same stadium in back-to-back weeks, weeks two and three, we saw. Um, Can you hear me in an apple? <laughs> I hear it. Mm. So uh, we saw that with the Bills when they got to play at, at the Jets, at Giants last year. So the 49ers getting to play at the two New York teams, not having to travel back. Big advantage, advantage for the 49ers. And um, I'll also make the case for uh, New England, Week 14. New England catches a big travel advantage. They have to go to L.A. back-to-back weeks, Weeks 13 and 14. And this is really amazingly good for New England. The Week 14 game is a Thursday night game. So what do we know? You don't want to play on the road on Thursday night. This is the first time I've ever seen on a schedule where a team actually has an advantage playing on the road on Thursday night because obviously New England is going to stay out in the Los Angeles area. So that Sunday night, they're already going to be in L.A. when um, the Rams are going to be in Arizona on Sunday night flying back home. So it's the rare case that New England, the road team, is going to have more prep time for the game than the home team, the Rams. And if you look at when New England played in Denver and then played in Mexico City and did the same kind of thing, I think they stayed at Fort Collins, is uh, you know very good one uh, two games for them that year. Yeah, and, and the and, idea of the two games on a trip, you know, Belichick planning it, and I think it was Lombardi said, you know, people talk about bonding during training camp, but there's a lot of players that aren't going to make the team, but when you do this in the middle of the year, it's all you're bonding with your, your the actual team, and it's even more meaningful. And because of that, I could really see San Francisco coming together, you know, with that trip back east. And especially when you think about last year, they had all that success early with this. And um, when you go to the Super Bowl and you have success with something and then you get it dealt almost identical, that's certainly very advantageous. I went well, in. Go ahead. Let, let me make the case. And this is actually Lombardi also. He actually makes the case that. San Francisco's way overrated. And his thinking is this. San Fran was an inch away or whatever from losing to Seattle. They would have been the fifth seed. We have no idea if they could win, you know, of one out. It wouldn't have been the, you know, it wouldn't have looked like the cakewalk in the Super Bowl it was. Right now, what are, if I wanted to play Seattle, he's high on Seattle, he's down on San Fran. I actually love these kind of one-two type, you know, like if you're down on the Bills or high on the Patriots, right? Division bets are great if you can find that scenario. Um, what, Mackenzie, what, what, what are the, you know, maybe check two or three places. What's the best number I can get on Seattle to win the division? Bet online right now is at 275 is the best number. Oh, so wait a minute. 275 is what kind of point spread in a game, Fez? Let's make sure I got this straight. On on a neutral? No, if I <clears throat> if I had plus 275 on a game. Oh, oh okay. Uh, you're looking at a seven and a half point spread. Um, 
So you're saying the odds of Seattle winning the uh, the division are the same as a, a, an over a touchdown underdog winning a game? Yes. Does that seem right? Thinking about this. Like what in what way was Seattle I I mean I get the whole that No, it it seems very wrong. Yeah, because I mean Let's be clear. As much as I was anti-Seattle last year, I don't feel like that was proven the way that Green Bay was proven. I think I I was down on Green Bay. I was down on Seattle. I think for sure I was right about Green Bay. I think I was likely right about Seattle. But when you lose all your running backs, I mean, the Steelers literally the year of Super Bowl 11 or 12, I can't remember. They didn't win. They had like two Rocky Blyer and Franco Hurt, and they couldn't win. How in the heck do you win without a running back when you're a running team? Yeah, you lose Chris Carson and you lose the kid from San Diego State and they're down to their fourth string running back. That's a great point. And literally, um, and Seattle, what's their MO? We just talked about. They run the ball half the time. They're a team that's going to be the most compromised by not having a running game. You know, uh, the Westgate actually has plus 350, Seattle, to win the West. And think about this. Seattle's supposed to win nine and a half games. The 49ers are only supposed to win ten and a half. They're only a game apart. So, no, that's interesting because you're a master at this. Uh, is this back of the envelope or would you uh, – if you maybe give it a shot. If not, we'll look at it next week. Like how would you quantify those two teams? I guess you would just think about what's the odds that a team that's supposed to win one more game ends up uh, not winning as many games. I guess there's a ch- the tiebreaker is going to be – we assume if they tie, it's 50-50, right, because you can't predict the tiebreaker then what's the chance that a, t- uh, a team is going to have the same record as a team that they're plus one win on? And what's the chance that they're going to actually lose record-wise to that team? And that combined chance is what? You know, and is it high enough to make plus 350 profitable? I, I, I think less than six. The, the better team's going to have the better record or, or win the divisions less than 67% of the time, maybe like 65%. And getting plus 350. Yeah. And I'm down on the Rams. Yeah. And you got Arizona, who's supposed to be a lot better. But, I mean, they're but still. Arizona's not going to win the They're division. not going to win. Exactly. They're in, I mean, they could, but, I mean, you know, it is what it is. It, but, it, it's a small uh, slice of our probability. Yeah. And I just feel like that if you look at the fact that, I mean, here's the thing. Team, when Carolina went to the Super Bowl and lost, they had a much more impressive season they were 15-1. and one. They rolled in the first two rounds of the playoffs. I mean, it was crazy. They, were, they would have maybe had the greatest season ever. If they had blown out Denver in the Super Bowl in the 16-game era, I'm not sure any team, maybe the Bears in 85, would have been as dumb. If you were to look at things like net margin of victory, they, they were just rolling. You know? Yeah, it was a little misleading. I think they only beat Seattle by seven, but you're right. They're up, I think, 21 in the fourth quarter. And Oh, you mean in the playoffs? Yes. It, it, oh. it, it, it was never in doubt that um, Seattle was going to lose that game. And the point, I, I guess I'm talking about two different things, and you're right to bring that up. If we're just looking at metrics, I'm talking about the whole year. Right. And their numbers for the whole year were really strong. If you're just talking about perception – the fact they won, won, lost by seven or won by seven instead of 21 is irrelevant because it was garbage points, but it would go into the stats. So watching – all I know is watching those playoffs, there was no sense that they even – that either of those games were competitive. 
before the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and let's face it, with all that momentum, that's why they're a six-point favorite in the Super Bowl. If you go 15-1 and one, and you don't even get challenged in the playoffs until the Super Bowl, that's one of the greatest seasons ever. Absolutely. And how were they next year? How were they the year after? Meaning San Fran, well, you know, what's the line? Ten minutes from winning it. One completed pass from Garoppolo. Okay, true. But because of that, it feels like they should have won it by some people. And now you add in that they dominated Green Bay. It looked like it wasn't even competitive, and it wasn't, that this is one of the great teams. Except, I mean, the second half of the year or so, they gave up like almost 30 points a game. And it was a great matchup for San Francisco. Green Bay just couldn't stop their running attack. Are we sure the problems on defense got resolved? No, we had we had a big discussion about was the defense, you know, it being tired at the end of the year, and, and I was making oh, excuses that, that, yeah. God, for, for them with that week four bye. No, we are not confident of that. So what I'm saying is if, if we knew the defense from the second half was the defense, they should be underdogs to win that division. Now, obviously, there's a chance they, you know, and they're making smart moves. They're a smart team. All I'm saying is, how, how do we know how Garoppolo has never really had a setback? I mean, you could say his injury, but that's not ego. So, like, he was the cock of the walk, right? Dayton porn star. Are we sure we know how the, the, the fact that it's now public that they were thinking about Brady? They were contemplating it. And then a lot of people are saying if it weren't for Garoppolo, they win the Super Bowl. And the fact that his team didn't trust him in that Super Bowl. Didn't trust him the entire playoffs. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is it feels like Seattle, you know, Russell Wilson hasn't won a Super Bowl for a while. You know, it feels like one of those years that we're going to look back on and say, man, they they had all their guns pointed in the right direction, that they were, you know, and, and to me, the coach, how many more years? I mean, he looks youngish. Carroll's like 68, I think. I think he might be older than that. Yeah. And remember, they're going to lose their, that great home crowd also. Well, for how much of the year, though? Yeah. So, I mean, that is a good point, though. i tell you this. If some, you know, let's put that a pin in that. And, and Lombardi's talking about this. Uh, it's not Everson Walls, but I should know this level of defensive player, but I don't. But there's some Everson-type name. Mackenzie, you know who I'm talking about? That Seattle's thinking of signing? He's like a free agent. Not not Jadavian Clowney, not him? No, not Jadavian Clowney, no. I don't think his name's Everson. (laughs) Everson, Everson uh, Everson Griffin from the the Vikings, the defensive end? Well, is his name Everson? Yes, so that's likely... Is he he unsigned? (laughs) Yes. And is he elite? Yes. You think it's him or Clowney? PFF grade over 80. All right. Not like Clowney. (laughs) So this guy's completely just a free agent still? Uh, as of May 1st, Seahawks still talking with Vikings' Everson Griffin. Yeah, so what Lombardi's saying is that, that he believes that would be a massively good signing for Seattle. So if they sign him, I want to bet this if we can get the 350. And if he doesn't sign him, let's wait to see what the, the uh, crowd's going to look like. 
Because if they announce, you know, I don't think the market, like maybe games might move, but I think we can get to the division odds quick enough and wait to see if news comes out. You're not concerned about the 29,000 miles Seattle most travel in the NFL? No, Steve, I'm not. All right. Somehow that private plane, I think they're going to be just fine. <laughs> the Raiders seem to exceed expectations nicely during yeah. their extended well, I road know trip. it gives people things to talk about on radio shows, so at least there's that. But what I'll say <laughs> is this. I, I think, if anything, that's one of the reasons Seattle has generally underperformed on the road. They're doing their very best years. They didn't, in theory. I still think they kind of did, but that's a debate. Is They always have, you know, they're up. People just think of they're just north in L.A., but you look at the map, fucking Seattle's way up there. I've no, never been to Seattle. No doubt, and that's why uh, it seems like across the board in all sports, Seattle has a great home field advantage. Part of that's that when teams have to travel to them, it's so far out of the way. And in theory, you could say, is there a compounding effect that makes it worse for them, or do they just get used to it? Meaning Seattle when they do have to go on the road. My, my thought is, in the old days, there would have been a compounding effect, but today that they can make travel so comfortable. I think it's more about the mentality. Like, because when you fly to Seattle, is it really that extra time that's screwing you up? Or is it that you're saying, ah, I got to do that. Ah, another hour here. Ah. And I just feel like that if you do it all the time, you just get used to it. Yeah. I I feel unequivocally, if you plopped another team in Seattle, that first year they had to travel that much would hurt them a lot more than it's going to hurt Seattle. Oh, I think that's a great point. If you suddenly. Why why were you so silent when I was making the point? I'm I'm thinking thinking about if you take one of these East Coast teams and they had to fly all the way across the country nonstop, they would have probably a a, a horrible year. And, And again, I think it's some of it's just mindset. You know where you you know it is what it is, and that's what that's normal. That's what we have every year. Yeah. So, all right. Anything else before the best bets? I think I'll just throw in piggybacking off that in the Russell Wilson era, uh, Seahawks are fifty six percent ATS on the road. So, and what's your home ATS? Though your point is well taken, they're exceeding expectations on the road. Now, my debate would be that if the team intrinsically is winning on the road and at home, it means they're intrinsically undervalued to a way that maybe the 56% wasn't overperforming, but rather there was a mispricing. They underperform on the road, but they were maybe 10% better than the way they were priced, but they were 6% better on the road, so there was a minus four. I know that's hard. I mean, there's no way to prove that, but... When we look at Seattle at home, go ahead. 58% ATS. Really? That's it? Yep. Boy, that's interesting because the year by year there is going to be fascinating because it seems like it's finally, you know, obviously this year was a really bad Seattle year at home. You almost got to wonder. Yeah, below 500 the last three years, 48%. Okay, that's interesting. And so before that, during the Russell Wilson era, it was like 65 Yep. Okay. What's changed, Steve? Or is it just the line cap going up? I think the line caught up to him. Yeah. All right. Let's hear from our gal. Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. Buy up your pad and pencil. I give you a piece of my mind. 
All right, week one, Fat. I'm on Las Vegas. Pick them at Carolina, RJ. This is all about the Raiders' offense being much better than expected this coming year in 2020. Let me make my case. Vegas has an awesome running back in Jacobs. He got injured at the end of last year. He was not quite himself, and he was a top-five running back. I expect it will be even better in his second year. They have a tight end, Waller, second year for Waller. He greatly exceeded expectations last year, and I expect he'll be better in his second year as well. The Raiders' number one wide receiver, Williams, was banged up most of the year and was not himself. Another second-year guy, Renfro, I expect him to be improved as well. So all those pieces for Carr, on top of the fact in the draft, obviously they got rugs. That's reflected in the so Vegas. Expl- explain me something. Mm-hmm. If a child that was four years old started pointing at the Raiders' schedule and every time he hit a name he said, better, better, it'd be about what you just said. So explain to me why. Let's go down the list. Why are these people going to be better? Because they're in their second year with the Raiders. So, so, it's always, so it's always the second year. Like if we just ran a computer program and said, what percentage of the people are, are in the – is it the second year with the team or the second year in the NFL? Second year with the team. All right. And that's all. I've never heard this handicap before, ever. So that's a handicap for you is how many second-year guys do we have? And the injuries. But not, well, well, no, 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 there is no and. There's going to be one and then a second thing. But let's finish the first. So, I, I mean, you've done how many picks in front of me? 2,000? Yes. You've never had that handicap before. Is it new? It is new. When did you, how did you, what research did you do on that? Well, I follow the Raiders more than a typical team. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to have just gone through the, their log game by game last year and saw how they, you know, they obviously tailed off at the end of the year. I'm like, well, why weren't the Raiders playing well at the end of the year? And a big part of it is that um, the running back Jacobs got hurt and they didn't have a number one wide receiver because Williams was all banged up. Okay. So all banged up. So he played though. Yes. But we have. But we can really assess how injured he was. He was not at a hundred percent. How again? Just saying. Me asking if we can do something, and you repeating that you think you can. That really isn't an answer. Explain to me how we would do that. I was reading recaps of the games that he was playing and not at a hundred percent. So, like, what would the recap say? You know, coming into the game, he had a hamstring, but he had 87 yards. How do we know how much his hamstring affected We, we don't know how much. So that means we don't know if it ha- affected it at all, right? Yes. So I'm confused. Well, the fact that there were reports that he was playing at less than 100% and gutting but out an injury. Were there reports, or did they say that he was potentially injured entering the year? Or, I'm sorry, entering the week. Meaning it's possible... That some, it's not as if everyone, I mean, that's an interesting study to do. Look at everyone on the injury report that plays and then, and then project what the, you know, maybe even we could just look at the daily fantasy, though, to some degree, maybe that accounts for it and see, you know, the, is someone who's questionable performing in an objectively different way than someone who's not on the injury report based on expectations of, of their stats up to that point? I know in our heads or in your heads you come up with stories around these things, but I've never seen that study, right? Have right. you? I have not. And, you know, you would think daily fantasy people 
would be given a lot of thought to this. Why don't you ask the hint, man? I mean, he's one of our A fantasy guys. I'm interested to hear this because I hear you. In general, if you said, do you think people are going to play better or worse if they're injured coming in? Now, assuming the injury reports are honest, I would say either the same or worse. And thus, sometimes it's going to be worse. To me, that's something that can be gravy on a bet because it's one of those, even if it's not the case, I still like it. And if it is the case, I like it more. But it can't be the core reason. Like, you got to have, like, a core bet has to be something you're willing to bet that by itself. And I haven't heard. So what is that? And think about it. What is that for this Raiders pick? I expect that Jacobs, Waller, and Renfro in their second year with the Raiders, two of the three were rookies last year, will all show continued improvement. Renfro kept getting better throughout the year. So what percentage of second-year players do the Raiders have compared to the other 31 teams? Because the theory is, before you say you don't know, the theory is if this is such a key stat that it could drive a bat, then you'd want to know that stat for every team, wouldn't you? Yes, and I don't have the numbers. Yeah. I can tell you that their stud um, safety, Abram, he was a rookie last year. He only played one game and went out injured, so he was out all year so long. So what we know is as little as we know about draft choices, which is we have no – when you say stud – you mean someone that was drafted high? He was drafted high and playing very well. The one game? And in preseason. Ugh. Come on. Because you watched... Uh, uh, hard knocks, right? Hard knocks, You and, and he was saying he wants to hit. That's why he so he wanted to hit so bad. Well, he was knocking his teammates out in preseason. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe he got himself knocked out, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Maybe he should hit a little <laughs> less. Listen, I, this all feels like it's built on a house of cards to me. I don't. I think the interesting side is how how Carolina is going to suffer for the pandemic because of the new coach and the yeah. new quarterback. Yes. So Rule in his first year, and obviously Bridgewater comes in, and let's face it, without the OTAs, teams are already losing five practices, and that's a big negative for Carolina. You know, this is a rare game that I actually think there might be enough little quarter advantage. I don't know quarter, what, what that even means. Let's think. We want a point and a half. So. I also like the fact, I'm RJ. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking. Is there any chance I can like get a sentence out during this? No, go ahead, buddy. You continue. Because when you keep adding things on top, it actually prevents us from being able to think about any one thing, which is I know it's your approach. But we actually want to think about these things, right? That's what makes this show interesting. Anyone can hear some crappy pick. I, I this is not a great pick by any stretch. Might be it might be a slightly winning pick, but it's no in, there's no great revelation here. All right. But what was the additional reason? I think that Mayock with the virtual draft had an advantage over. Oh my gosh! So we're gonna actually assume that the which is one of the basic tenets that I thought I beat you up so bad on that that you agreed to that we're not going to predict how draft choices are going to do. Wasn't that what we like fought over for? We like, did, but we said if there is an exception, Mayock would be the exception. I never one. said that. No? I said that, that maybe mm. the chances of him 
being positive, you know, having a positive draft are a little bit greater, but I think there's so much uncertainty in it. I don't even know how to, I don't do, here's what you got to realize. I don't do things unless I can quantify them, at least in a way that, that gets not where there's an exact number, because I think people that do that get in the habit of fooling themselves about knowing things they don't know, but it's got to feel big enough to me, you know, and it's not science. Quantify might actually be too grand a word for it. I want to. I want to make the case that this is big enough to change the game, right? And what mm-hmm. I was going to say was before you threw in the goofy draft crap. Imagine going. I mean, imagine that. Imagine going to someone and saying, "I'm going to convince them how great I am." And say, "I'm betting the Raiders." Say why? Well, Mayock, you may or may not know this. He used to do draft all year round. Now he did the draft. I think it's going to be mighty good. And I think, now how many uh, of the rookies are going to play? No idea. But this game, that's why I'm picking it. You see how goofy that is? I mean, I could see if you were doing a season win and you believed it. Maybe it's worth an eighth of a win. But I can't imagine a week one. Isn't the very isn't one of the reasons to dislike Carolina is – there's people getting caught up with the whole seven defensive players, but they had a, they needed they were so deficient Carolina on defense they needed a draft seven, and with the COVID nineteen limitations, how ready are they going to be in week one? I think that's a hell of a point. I also think it's a hell of a point that as we discovered you know or just looked up here, is that he's bringing his Baylor DC. That feels like a weak spot to me. A, a, a college quarterback, a college coordinator, it's never been a head coach even in college, I don't think, is going to have to then go against the sharpest minds out, you know, like, I mean, quite frankly, against Gruden? That feels like a mismatch. Right? Yes, and I have every expectation that the, if the Raider offense is going to be so much better this year than last year. Yeah, but see, you're confusing the points again. Like that's what I don't understand is why you don't ever want to get into something. You always want to just like mm-hmm. pow. It's almost like like at a bad buffet where they usually put salsa out so you can get the dry meat and put a bunch of salsa on there and it feels like you're eating something good. I've tried that a lot. Is like to me, each of these things are only as valuable as they are under the microscope. Right. And I don't and, and I do agree with you. Forget who was half injured and maybe injured but played and maybe they could have done better, all that crap pola. I, I I'm skeptical enough about that if they actually if you I test it with a quarterback like Mahomes, you get with receivers and running backs, unless you're watching the old all twenty two, how do you have any idea how they're playing other than their stats? Running back, maybe, because you're going to see them more with the ball and if they're going slow, if they're not breaking tackles. But a receiver? How many seconds do you see a receiver play a game? Five catches, and so that's, what, nine seconds? Yeah, something like that, right? So you're, like, in a whole season, if you watch the game feed, you're probably seeing a receiver for less than two minutes. Two minutes. minutes. Yeah. So... Like, how do we know how injured this guy was? Right? How many games did he miss? Missed three games. And were they three in a row? Was there 
was it like a miss the game, play the game, miss the game? I almost would value that more, meaning by discounting the injury, if it was so lingering. Like T.Y. Hilton sometimes, you know, would be questionable for eight. At least you know he's kind of hurt if he's missing games. But if you have a guy miss three games, then I could maybe give him the one game that he comes back first. He's going to be a little limited. Yeah, so he missed week 13, came back for week 14, then missed the final two, uh, or game 14, missed the final two games of the year. So I think 14, it's fair to say that's not a representat- uh, representative. And I also think he's missed three. So, And listen, Steve, this is starting to come together a little bit for me, meaning I hear what you're saying, except you're not saying it, which is, the Ra- you know, what's the perception of the Raiders? The perception is, ah, they had their moments, but, you know, slightly below average team. But the case could be made that, that coming into week 12, you know, and what we know for sure is that the Raiders were like five and a half point underdogs at Green Bay, right? At yes. the end of a long road trip. Now, we also know the Lions were plus three and a half, which is almost incomprehensible. No injuries of, uh, you know, of note. Or no, let's just say this, Aaron Rodgers played. That's all you have to say. So, I mean, obviously the wise guys were against Green Bay in ways I've never seen before. You know, that level of negativity. But all that said, the Raiders were in the playoff hunt. So were the Steelers, but okay. And then what happened? They looked like crap the last four games or so. And the fact that you can put it together, here's the receiver that missed three of those. And he tried to play in this week 14, but he only had 70 or, you know, 63. How many yards did he have? He had 87. 87, right? So, nah, it's all right. But, you know, I saw him for those three seconds on the replay, and I think he was limping. But anyway, forgetting that, then now the, re- the running back out. And then you talk about how good the backup was. Right, which I'm assuming wasn't very good. See, this starts to make sense. How if the Raiders had finished three and one, how different would the perception be? And now it's like they could have finished three and one if it weren't for these injuries. These guys are healthy now, and we can't quantify it. But what we know is they got some young guys. Young teams typically get better. So you had a team that was injured, that was injured at the end of the year, especially, and it was a lot of cluster, not so much cluster injuries, but a lot of injuries for the team itself. And thus, it compounded. And we all remember the ending of the year instead of the beginning. And because of that, the Raiders are underrated. I think that's fair. And does that accurately express what you're feeling? Yes, it does. And do you see where there's a little nuance to it instead of just the broad strokes? Yes. And like, I didn't say one thing there that you couldn't have said yourself. Right? Yes. So that's the bar. Right? Let's tell a story. Right? Let's not try to pow salsa. That'll be a new saying on dry turkey. You've done that at the Fiesta. That's disgusting. No, it's not. It's it's okay. That's the point. You did that at the Fiesta, right? That's where I saw the Fezzik clan out and about, eating the (laughs) two-for-one buffet at the Fiesta. (laughs) Heading to the dessert bar a second time. Oh, why not, right? So... And then I think Carolina's got some real problems early in the year. And I think in a way they're setting themselves up for that. You know, is I, I think this is a year they want to create culture. And I'm not saying they're tanking. I'm just saying they're not like 
They're not doing aggressive stuff to win now. And nor, nor do they need to win now. Exactly. And, and, and I think, I don't like it's the first home game for them just because I think that the city, that's an interesting point. I'm excited about Temper uh, and, and, and the owner and the way he's approaching stuff. But I think Rule had such a great rep that I, I'm guessing Carolina as a place is excited. But again, there, there might not Doesn't be any matter. fans. Yeah. yeah. What's the line? So week one, did you talk about this when I was getting my apple uh, about what the general adjustment is for fans? I did not talk about it. I, in general, I've been giving two points to all the I'm teams. I'm not asking what you're giving. What's the market giving? Two. The market agrees. All right. So. All right. I, I just believe this. I think if you dig in to the players on Carolina's defense and really see who they've lost. If you assume these um, drafted guys aren't going to contribute a ton the first game, this could be one of the worst defenses in the NFL. That's the question. If you look at pro football focus, and I, and again, there's, how do you figure out how good a defense is? It's a great mystery, I think. But by any objective measure of how much you're paying these guys to pro football focus. I mean, who's the star? I mean, who's the star, uh, you know, the, the, the strength of that defense that wasn't drafted? McKenzie? I don't, I don't know of one. I'm looking at uh, Mike Clay here on Twitter say he doesn't know how the Panthers are going to field 11 men on defense. When was that? That was April 9th. It was a draft pre-draft coverage. So they, they tried to fill the gaps for sure. Well, but that does not reinforce the point that if you assume that these rookies are not going to be, you know, above average NFL players in week one, and with the, you know, the, the great D tackle probably will be in week one. But is he going to be great? I don't think so. Especially, again, limited. you got a new coach, a new scheme, a coach that's never coached in the NFL before and head coach, a defensive coordinator that's never coordinated in the NFL, and limited practice time and more rookies on the defense that's supposed to play a role than anything I've ever seen. That is a hell of a story. doesn't have to do with some guy who had 87 yards, but he should have had 110. <laughs> anyway, it's not that story, Steve. You agree? I agree. Why do you keep doing it then? And and I love your the new defensive coordinator having to make all these rookies fit that aren't going to have such limited time with uh, limited prep. Yeah, and I don't know if he's up for the task. If you gave me an over under how many years this guy's going to be a coordinator level in the NFL, you know I don't know. He could be great, but I told this story before, so I'll say it quickly. You don't Matt Rule doesn't know what the or didn't know at the time he agreed to bring him what the NFL is like. And usually when someone goes up a level, they want someone that they tr- they trust. But oftentimes that's the wrong guy. Unless that guy's willing to be a position coach, you got to go. And, and I think the Rams are a good example of that. McVay came up inexperienced. I mean, his rule is no less. I mean, if anything, you could say McVay's NFL experience was greater, even at his young age, right? Than Matt Rule before he was hired. I'm not sure. You don't know McVay's coaching background? Look it up. So before he was the head coach of the Rams, he was the offensive coordinator for two years with Washington Redskins. So right there, he has more experience. <laughs> yep. So go ahead. He was a, t- he was a tight end coach And that was a hell of a staff, then. right? Oh, yeah. You had Shanahan on there. You had um, uh, Kyle and Mike. Yeah. And you had uh, Matt LaFleur, who became a, you know. 
I mean, think we'll about see. that. That's a hell. And that team was that the year they made the playoffs with RG three, but then yes, they were all there in the 2012 playoff run when they won the division. Boy, that's always interesting to see, like you know, the old Browns coaches with Belichick and see, you know, <laughs> I those pictures are always interesting. But just rattle through the other NFL. Uh, before that, he was a tight ends coach, then an offensive coach, and he got his first job with John Gruden in Tampa Bay in 2008 as an assistant. Yeah, so Steve, you think about it, young, yes, but so much more experience than Matt Rule. Now, has Matt Rule been in the NFL? Not at all. He was uh, head coach at Baylor, and before that, uh, his whole time at Temple, Temple yeah. took over the head coach Temple back in 2012 at Temple since 2006. Oh, okay. Uh, he got a cup of coffee, it looks like, in New York with the Giants in 2012. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. So that was one year? Yes, assistant and, offensive line. Yeah. Which, again, it's funny how many levels they had. I, I know a guy who was the head coach at Youngstown State. Then he went to the 49ers. But he was like, you know, like one of those generic offensive assists. And, you know, they get paid really well. But it's like, you know, he was like the 12th guy on the defense coach-wise. You know, like meaning there are a lot of guys ahead of him. Once you get even to be like a D-backs coach or whatever, like you got a lot of coaches under you. Like position coaches seem like the low level, but they're not in the NFL. You have the, all the way down to quality control. And what you usually see is people who do make it usually have a lot or oftentimes have a lot of those years where they aren't even a name. You know, they're a generic name, but they were on like Gruden staff. And then they jump around and they get all these perspectives. And if they're smart... That's how you get good. And that's kind of the modern way, you know. So the idea of, got, you know, having your own framework, gathering about other people's, and then augmenting your framework based on you, what you learned, Bo Borg style. Then you go to the next place and do it, and the next place and do it, and eventually you're ready to be a head coach. And that's why guys in poker, Fez, you know, you think of all the hand simulations, all the different things, they're able to have more inputs and the whole scientific method so much better than Doyle. Oh, sure, because they're playing, you know, they probably played 100 times more hands than Doyle. And I would make the case that the thing that's under-discussed when it comes to the what's changed the modern era, and, you know, Mackenzie, I would never ask you to talk about or talk to any of the Shanahan's, like, on the record or whatever, but whoever, any coaches you know, I am interested in them quantifying the idea of how much the whole iPad at home thing, the whole I ability of the team and the coaches to look by any tag they want to search by. So anyone that understands even basics of blogging or whatever, you can tag by anything. You can say, hey, this is a Monday. I'm going to tag by the day of the week. I'm going to tag by – there's all theories about what you should tag, you know, information architecture and how you should tag things. But think about plays. You can tag with the the uh, twelve personnel or the different the personnel grouping, who is on the field, right? The, a combination of these three, right? Cooper Cup's on the field, Gurley's on the field, and so you know, and then say, but only in the fourth quarter. Well, that's an easy search, and only on third down. But like, there's no scenario that they can't see like the 19 times that it was this. Imagine. It wasn't even possible. You could spend a week to get those 19 plays 20 years ago. 
and now you can get them in the time it takes to enter the variables into the, the, the winnowing database. So I'm, from what I gather, but I haven't gotten all the direct info I want, that the scientific method that young people tend to have is, or very talented and advancing young people, is, it is so much fed by the, the databases of plays that they learn more in a couple years, you know, just like the poker. And assuming that's true, McVeigh maybe isn't very inexperienced. Now, he might be inexperienced with things like HR and all that. And that's why bringing in Phillips, the old man, was such a good move. Now, it's interesting. He's gone now, right? So is it, is it McVeigh feels like he's ready, you know, ready to take over as a true head coach? That's going to be interesting. Maybe it's some growing pains, and maybe this is the year to have them. I don't know. But in general, I think McVeigh had massive experience relative to rule at the NFL level. Would you agree, Fez? Absolutely. And thus, the theory that Carolina is going to have some growing pains themselves is probably pretty good. Yes. We salvaged your pick, buddy. <laughs> You salvaged it. Thank God that I didn't think that I didn't dislike it. <laughs> hey, listen. All joking aside, you know, obviously I'm in my 40s, so it's not like I'm some young guy. But I think it's fair to say, at least in, in the ways I learn and the ways I approach information, I do in that you know more modern way, and. The fact that you're up for the battles and, you know, quite frankly, you know, you lose some. And You think? <laughs> but the fact that you are learning from it, and you, I mean, you to me, you're, whatever holes you have in your game, you have a lot less than you did two years ago. And there's not many people who's, you know, in their 50s that are still learning like that. So to me, you got all the, be- that's the thing about the old school you got all the benefits of the old school, and those benefits are substantial. And I think at a certain point, the new school in any evolution becomes more important than the old school. But the old school guy that can pick up even 70 or 80% of the new school that still has the old school, that might be the bigger number. All right? So your willingness to keep – and that's why young, you know, young blood like McKenzie's good. You know, when you're 29, 30 years old, you're an Ivy Leaguer – you're analytically driven. Yeah. Well, well, he'll get the balls to disagree with me at some point, I think. Right, Mackenzie? And say it out loud all at the same time. Well, see, yeah, that's devious, though. You're acting as if there's all these brilliant points that you have. No, you don't say them out loud because you know you know it's going to be like uh, like uh, Goldberg in a, in a wrestling match. <laughs> it's going to be over very quick. You know, or just next week you can make it, you know, where you, is your coming out party or, you know. AKA your funeral. <laughs> but well, I, yep. if you do, if you come in wanting to learn, I'll teach. You come in <laughs> trying to go at the king, won't work. Best not miss, as, <laughs> as Omar would say. <laughs> All right, we got two extra best bets. And one of them is from Diamond Dave. Diamond Dave, who looks like Uncle Dave. It's funny. Both these guys, Fez, are so much. They're, they're like Kaiser Soze types. 
you look at him and you think, not much there. You know, not, you know, I mean, not much when it comes to, like, a professional batter, right? They don't look like anyone. Like, if they sat down at your poker table, you wouldn't be scared, would you? Not at all. And you got to wonder with the Kaiser Sosa reference, it's almost like, RJ, can you imagine you go to Ritz-Carlton and there's Esler, like, wearing an Armani suit and he's fooled you the entire time? You know what's funny? I, I, you know, I can't even say it here with any specificity, but if you actually knew... Day's full background. Next time he's in town, like this will be his, like when he's retiring and changing his name or something. Because Dave, you know, Dave, he's Dave Asler, baby. Is when, when that happens, maybe we'll get him on a pod and and get that true story. It would blow your, like they could make a movie about it. <laughs> Let me just say that. And so he look, he yeah, he looks like Uncle Dave, but they call him Diamond Dave. That that tells the whole freaking story. And we've got Tommy the Hitman, who's a school teacher in Jersey who weighs 155 pounds, but he's called the Hitman. If you have to wonder if he's good at what he does, that answers it. But finally, before any of that, we do gotta tell the poker story. So let's stick to the facts first. And then I'm going to give you each 30 seconds to respond to those facts. So, Fez, what are the facts of the match? And for those that didn't hear, heads-up challenge between those two. Three different kind of freeze-outs. Starting with 100 big blinds in each of the three? Yeah, so we're playing one, two, $200 each. And again, that money is, it's just a way to, it's units because ultimately the betting is 1000 bucks, right? Exactly. I'm risking 1000 bucks against McKenzie and yourself, RJ. Well, no, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. For punishment, now I have 200 of that and McKenzie has 800 meaning I'm punishing McKenzie. But we do have an edge where if you guys play X amount of time and it's, there hasn't been a winner. We win the tie. Yeah, six hours is the cutoff point if there's and not how, a resolution. We're, we're how far into it? Hollywood, are we 36 minutes in? 36 minutes. I love that he just says Hollywood like that. That's sticking. <laughs> that, that, that just sanctified it right there. Go ahead, Steve. And so after the first session, I'm not going to lie, RJ, there was... Uh, well, there, first off, since McKenzie's right there to correct, I don't think you could lie. <laughs> there, was a, there was a setback uh, for my side. So, uh, so how how much are you down? Chip count. I've got one hundred sixty dollars left, and one hundred sixty chips, and Mackenzie two hundred forty. Okay, okay. I love the thirty six minutes. I mean, we're <laughs> we're we're, we're one twelve through this thing. Mackenzie, grind it out, baby, grind it out. All right. Now, do you agree <laughs> with the recitation of facts? Yes, that's true. Okay. Now, I think because you're in the lead, we'll let you have the first forty five seconds to speak on. How you think it's going? Well, I love the fact that we're half an hour in and I got a lead. And as they said in rounders, sometimes once you get a lead, you just got to lean on them and lean on them. And uh, I like <laughs> oh my, my position. Oh, my God. He's almost like if, if he was right in your face, he'd be like giving you a little like, like fake jabs right to your nose right now. <laughs> lean on them and lean and grind and grind. Steve, how you feeling? Once you take out half of a man's stack, it's like a sitting on a chair with only three legs, RJ. Okay, but what you feel is what? You know, I got to be honest here. Okay. I'm a little less confident. So his game, so you're saying his game was impressive. His game was more impressive than I thought, and my game was less impressive. 
Mm-hmm. And here's why. Thank God I'm not playing you. <laughs> it's almost like the million dollar man like sends. I'll it. tell you this, Mackenzie, you beat him. You want to go with me, baby? <laughs> we'll go. It's like he said. What was his bodyguard, Virgil? It's yeah, like yeah. it's like ah, I'm not going to deal with Fezzik. I'll just send send Mackenzie to beat him up. Well, you know what's funny is Virgil was out of Pittsburgh. I mean, like <laughs> I did you not know, know this. And and he used to come down to Wheeling. He was at the track all the time. And that dude was he had he would have uh, like two thousand in his hand like he you know the guys that keep out the role that they are they want ready access to that moment yeah he would have like two thousand in his hand opened up right so the mm-hmm. roles opened up and he's just ready to rifle through whatever he needed to make his you know his uh you know his Quinella or Superfecta alls you know put two at the front all 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 kind of thing they call that keying. I lost Key a lot. Se- of, I lost a lot of money at the track. <laughs> I probably lost thirty k over there over the years. I mean, I haven't played in twenty years, but I was so stubborn. I guess it's back to the thing, right? The idiot that's going to keep going back is the guy that can finally beat something. Because I would just—I mean, I, I would then go make money. I was making so much money at sports betting. You know, this is ninety. 91, 92, 93, 94. I mean, it was just like you know, it in hindsight. I had some modern ideas then, and it was stealing. Well, it wasn't stealing, but it was it was a short thing I would win in the long run. You know, you give me the line at six thirty and let me bet at seven twenty-five, I'm gonna beat you. And especially when you give me half points on every th- third game as a bon- like as a way, you know, to rebate me or whatever. So, and he never beat me, but he, those bookies back then didn't think they could ever lose long term. Because they're beating everyone long term, so they just think it's eventual. You know, that is such a great point because back then, literally, when you have a sample size of 88 losers and no winners, you just like, it's almost like you read these books, hey, people can win counting cards, but when everybody loses in my casino, you're like, ah, that doesn't work. You know, it's, you don't even worry about it, right? Yeah. And I think it probably is smart. I think the casinos would be better off if they assume no one can beat them and make the bar a lot higher. That I think they probably are. I mean, I hear about people getting barred at blackjack that literally should not be barred for anything. They should be able to show them the whole card and bet blackjack. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking. But, you know, so it strikes me they're too quick to bar people. No question. Same with sports now. That There's some oh. people, obviously, that just get there by luck, you know, and then they, they get uh, backed off or kicked out. And to me, in the long run, for every person that is beating you that you allow to stay in, you're going to have three that you're beating that are in. And plus, you don't get the bad PR. I don't, you know, I don't understand it. But listen, part of it's HR, too, though. How, many, you know, how much human resource you want to spend on your bookmaking? And if you don't, you don't want to fight yet. Listen, as Maddie Holt said, it's like wrestling a barrel of snakes with Fezzik. You know, so, I mean, you're coming at him every which way. I mean, they just want to go home and eat dinner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Hollywood, we'll, yeah. next Wednesday, we're going to have the first. It might be 30 seconds. It might be three minutes. Like, whatever footage we think is interesting, we're going to have it up on Twitter by Wednesday night. And that means by Thursday, by the time this pod is dropped, you will be able to tell you what it is and where to get it. Absolutely. All right. And I'm rooting for Mackenzie. I can't lie. Did, last question. Did you read any heads up advice online? I did not. Boy, that is such disrespect for Fazek. Huh? Like, I, I don't go to a restaurant without reading about it. 
on Yelp, but you didn't even think it need. And have you ever played Heads Up for Money? I actually told Fez a story I have, and it did not go well. So uh, your only history is that you are horrible at Heads Up Hold'em. Um, yes. <laughs> and you have an $800 bat with Fezzik, and your response to the first encounter was? I rewatched Want Rounders. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Uh, yeah, I saw some scenes. That's I got, funny. I got amped. That's yeah, just bet, bet 30 big blinds all at once, you know, right off the flop. That'll work. That's funny. That's fun. I bet I bet ninety percent of the country is rooting for Mackenzie, and only like real psychopaths are rooting for Fazek. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got. Let's do it. Here's the lineup. We got Diamond Dave. We got Tommy the Hint Man, and then we've got Fazek <laughs> struggling to understand what's a Democrat. And what's a Republican in 2020? This is a man that pays hundreds of thousands of taxes over the years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Seven figures of taxes. And all that money's going. You don't even know what a Republican and Democrat is. I didn't believe it. But when you listen, you're going to know it was true. And you're also going to know, I want this guy betting my sports. I don't want him voting for me. I want him betting my sports. We'll be back next week. And remember, guys. I talked about it on the prior part. I'll say it here quick. We're doing a switchover. Great years with Podcast One. We're, we got, let's just say this, is for football, there's going to be a big announcement. And I'll just hint at it. It's going to be about building out a, more of a network and having a partner to do that. And I don't even want to make any promises about how many. If we had just one additional pod, the start is going to be great. I think it will be more than that. Um, but my goal over the next couple years is to build out eight, ten great pods. And it might be on the floor poker. It might be Vegas advantage play. It might be fantasy sports. Anything that's adjacent, as they say, to what we do. And direct. Guy that just does UFC. Specialist. That's what we like. Weekly kind of pods. Get enough of those. Right? Partner. We're going to do something with it. So, um, as I said in the other pod, a great experience in the years of Podcast One, and I wish them the best. They've been great as we've went our way, and, you know, especially Adam Carolla, who uh, was just treated, you know, me so good, and, you know, I I feel good that, you know, our relationship is so good moving forward, and, you know, it's an honor because he's one of the, you know, pioneers when it comes to podcasting, so... If only me and Joe Rogan. No, I love I love Adam loved Joe Rogan. I was never a W that WTF guy. I mean, I've heard a few of his, but you know, those comedy pods, you know, Adam in theory is a comedy pod, but it's more the you know, the guy on the you know, get off my lawn guy more, which is always interesting because it's always interesting to hear him say things that most people wouldn't even have the guts to say. And then at least they get to be discussed. Because to me, whatever it is. You know, we should be able to share. And I talked about this on the radio show. We should be able to share what we believe. And if we're wrong, you know, then it feels like talking about it's the quickest way to figure that out. Not, you know, whispering in a basement to your friend about it. So that has the same beliefs. And I kind of like the fact that Adam can say so many things that people are going to be like, oh, my God. And he's still ticking. So it's been all positive. And and I think the 
as Frankie would say, the best is yet to come, and we're glad to have you along for the ride. So here comes our best bets, and then Fez. Talk to you next week. I like and I bet the Jaguars-Colts under 46 NFL Week 1. We suspected this climate new might not be good. Jacksonville has a new offensive coordinator, Jay Gruden. That's two OCs in two years for Minshew. The Jags had one of the, the most anemic offenses last season and did nothing to address it this season that I can see. The Colts have a new quarterback with Rivers who had the 22nd lowest QBR last season or statistically his second worst as a starter. I love the Pittman pick, but rookie rookie. I love the Pittman pick, but rookie wide receivers don't typically come out of the gate fast, and it's not likely he and Rivers get a ton of reps before week one. We know defenses are usually ahead of offenses, and in this climate, that should be magnified. And without a solid off-season conditioning program, the 90-plus degree heat makes that discrepancy even larger. So we have new, new, and no conditioning, which means no points. Jags Colts under. It's 46 right now. I love this one. Down to 45. Finally, we have some week one odds to look forward to. So let's go to the NFC North for our first best bet of the 2020 NFL regular season and take the Packers plus three and a half at the Vikings. The Vikings are going to be one of the most affected teams in the NFL by the likelihood of no fans in the stadium, as they rely on their team's home field advantage way more than other teams. Since Mike Zimmer took over in 2014, no team is better against the spread than the Vikings at home. The Vikings are also going to be hurt by a lack of an offseason program more than the Packers, as they're more dependent on rookies this season than almost any other team in the league. The Vikings had an NFL-high 15 draft picks, many at key positions such as wide receiver, offensive line, and defensive back. Lastly, Division Dogs Week 1 since 2014, 21 Five and one against the spread, including four and one last year. Best bet: Packers plus three and a half. Okay, yeah. so if I said what to you is a typical Democrat, what jumps out at you? Anti-Trump. Okay, so you are anti. That's interesting. That's the only thing. <laughs> okay, uh, let's assume Trump wasn't around. Then what would the Democrats be? Democrats would be very liberal. Okay, liberal. What does that mean? Usually that would mean allowing of liberties. A liberal is allowing liberties. Interesting. So, you know, you would think that, wouldn't you? Um, and what other Democrats are you aware of? I'm not a, po- a like, po- do, you, do you know that, like, do you know what party Bill Clinton ran in? Yeah, Democrat. Okay. And how would you describe Clinton? I think a mainstream, mainstream Democrat, right? But we, since you don't know what a Democrat is, that is meaningless. So what is – how when you think back, you were an adult to Bill Clinton's era. There was eight years he was president from 92 to 2000. What do you think? So let, let's do it like this. When it comes to, let's say, taxation, all right, and we'll go one to ten, ten being the, the government wants to tax you more, where would you put Bill Clinton? Seven. Okay, I think that's fair. I think you could even say a six. He was pretty moderate. Okay. At least it seems. Okay. And let's say we have taxation, and let's go with uh, social programs. If you say, you know, how open is he to welfare, extended unemployment, you know, free college, that kind of thing, 
We're one to ten. Seven ten. and a half. Okay. So what we're saying is you see a Democrat to typically be – oh, last thing. If you said how much of an uh, embracement of science, whereas, you know, hey, the scientists say one thing and a Democrat is going to be what? Is he going to be like, wow, that's very important, or who gives a hell about science? Uh, Ten being love signs, zero being hate signs. What would you say Democrats are? Seven. Okay. I think that's all fair. Uh, Or at least a generic Democrat. So now let's think about Florida. And now let's think about science. Does it feel like Florida is following every machination of the scientific community? No. By definition, the machination implies they're going a little left. Or not left, but they're here in one day. Next day, you can wear masks. You shouldn't wear masks. You should. There's obviously been a lot of ebb and flow when it comes to what's best practice or what the consensus has been. But, you know, at the same time, Though it seems absurd to act like science is coming from the mountaintop, at least when there's any debate about it, obviously eventually there becomes consensus, and I think mostly always then it stays consensus for a long time. But whenever there's scientists, you know, even if it's 80-20 on one side, you know, a lot of times it ends up that the 20's right. Um, what I say about science, just so no one can lest anyone misunderstand, I think science is like a great professional batter. They don't win near as much as people think they should, but they are the best way to win. I believe science is the best guess of the future if it's legitimate and, 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 and sincere. I think sometimes politi- or scientists get political beliefs too, and they start to fudge numbers. We've seen that before. That's horrendous. I mean, to me, that fundamentally can question all the belief that you have in anything, right? So other than that, I believe science is the best guess about the future. Just like your NFL is probably the best guess about the NFL. But a professional better wins 55% of the time. That's the best, but it's still almost 50-50. I'm not going to guess what a scientist hits. It's far less than 100%. And if only... The lovers of science would say, hey, it's a guess, but it's the best guess. So why not go with the best guess? It's kind of hard to disagree with that. Now, you could say, well, what's the cost-benefit analysis? If you're giving me a guess about global warming, which, again, that seems to be a big preponderance of people on one side of that, scientifically. But if you're saying, if you're right, here's the consequence to the planet at some indeterminate future date, oh, but we're seeing the consequences now, okay, maybe, but, or, you know, I think to some degree, yes, but the question is, how damaging are they, these consequences, and what, how certain are we about the future, because if the consequence of embracing that belief is massively uh, economic negative, right, an economic negative, uh, now, you could say, well, there's all these green jobs and all that. It's like, oh, wow. You know, like if somehow China started to do massive, like moved, moves towards green energy, I would be very happy just for the planet, but I wouldn't be so scared economically about it, right? So it's kind of hard to say this is better for the future and it's better for now. Usually things aren't like that, right? If you eat cheesecake, you have a belly. If you don't eat cheesecake, you don't get to enjoy the now, but you enjoy the future. It's usually now or later, all right? Not always, but usually. And I do think it's a valid point to say 
if the scientists are wrong, if the consequence is massive, then we've got to make sure that the confidence level is higher than 55%. Because if you're laying 110, 55% is fine. But in a way, you could say that some people would say, and I think there's some merit to this, that you're laying like minus 300 or minus 400 with the environment stuff. That if you're right, for sure, it's the right move. If you're not certain about being right, maybe it's too expensive. Some of it, right? And some of it seems like a no-brainer. I don't know. I, I'm no expert at the uh, specifically the environment. But I think we got part people on each side that if they just tweaked one thing, it would be so easy to agree. We might disagree about the given assumptions, but we could agree that science is pretty good predicting the future, probably the best, but it's not perfect. So let's look at the situation, let's estimate the, the confidence level, and let's act accordingly. Most people aren't going to disagree with that. Most anti-science people aren't stupid. There's a lot of stupid people on both sides. There's a lot of smart people on both sides. But the anti-science people typically are more offended that, you're tr that some people are trying to make science into a type of religion that you worship at the altar of. And that's the thing about religion. It is perfect. It is godlike. And that's what people find appealing. And if you try to act like something that is secular is actually godlike, you're going to get people against it. So whoever acts like the scientists have never been wrong, you're wrong. And whoever acts like the scientists are, let's say, random and that there is no predictive value, well, you're wrong too. So now let's meet in the middle. But Fez, as you're thinking about this, kind of seems ridiculous you don't know who the Republican and who the Democrat is. Yeah, the is, Florida's right? Republicans and California's Democrat. It only took you 10, 12 minutes. Yes. That's pretty good. So, and you know Trump's a Republican. Yes. Okay. Now, do me a favor. This is just fascinating. Because in a way, this is like a, this is almost like people might say, I wonder if they planned this. You heard in his voice, we didn't. But <laughs> is, it'd be interesting to hear, like, all the people thinking, my God, this guy has a mansion and a yacht and a set, most second. I bet I bet Johnny knows <laughs> the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, your eight or nine year old son. And it strikes me that they're thinking this could be a put on. This could be a work, as they say, to show us how he's so dedicated to betting that he's oblivious to anything else. But it wasn't that, was it? No. I guess my hang-up here was just like, I think about the Democrats, you know, and the civil liberties and not being, and people having them, you know, to be able to go out and the idea of them, the, the everyone being in a, under a lockdown, that seems like such an undemocratic thing. You know, I mean, you're, listen, no one's going to get too mad at you, but you're hitting on some hot words here that probably would get people mad if they thought you had any idea what you were talking about. Fortunately, I don't. Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, I think there's a lot of people that would say that there is an inherent contradiction with both the Democrats and the Republicans. And it's the following. Think about it as when you lived with your parents. Now, you did you ever live with your parents after High school, or you went to college and never boomeranged back? I uh, came back a couple summers. Yeah, for summer. But okay. Yeah. So if you're back, let's say in your 20s and you're out of school and you're one of these boomerang kids, your dad, your mom, whoever you know the, the parent is, or both of them, if they said, you know, son, we don't want you coming in past 1 a.m., now you could say, I'm an adult, 
but you also understand the old as long as you're under my roof, right? And there's sure. some merit to that is if someone is supporting your life, then they have more of a right to get involved, right? And then on the other hand, if someone's not giving you anything, they have less, less of a right to tell you things, you know, to dictate to you. And in general, that makes sense, right? Is if I want to get like, a, you know, we years ago, we got an SBA loan. It was a rigmarole and it took a long time. I'm not even sure it was worth it in the end. But how am I going to complain if I'm asking the government in this case, you know, trying to help business and such and offer a handout? I paid interest, paid it back. But to get the loan through the SBA was preferable. And thus I was looking for help through that program, it's their rules at that point, right? And I could have said no thank you at any time. I almost did, but I didn't, and here we are. It's all paid off. I probably won't do it again. Now, typically the Democrats are saying we want to help you a bunch, but we don't want you, we don't think we have any right to tell you what to do, right? That seems weird. It's like if you're getting welfare, it seems like them saying, hey, you should... Do X and Y because we think it's going to help you. Now, do I have the exact right answer about what they should, what X and Y should be? No. But in general, if I'm taking something from someone, I feel like they got some say in how I spend the money. Right? If they're giving it to me. But if they're not giving me anything, I don't think they have a say. And thus, you look at the Republicans, they're not anxious to give very much to the underprivileged, typically. And some people would say, oh, they have uh, corporate welfare and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all debates. But at the core, it's less, you know, less welfare, less handouts, less entitlements. But at least with some of the Republicans, it's, hey, we should be in your business. You want to have anal sex? No, thank you. That's not allowed in this state. You want, you know, I mean, all the way into the bedroom. I think, I don't think someone's an idiot if they have conservative social beliefs. And I don't think someone's an idiot if they're a Democrat that believes that money and entitlements help the underprivileged. But what feels so contradictory to me is the idea that if you take money, that there shouldn't be any involvement or dictating to them. And if you don't give money like the Republicans but you want to dictate. They both seem wrong to me. Now, finally, you're bringing up a very interesting point. Both of the parties, it seems like, at least have the beginnings of the worst qualities of the others, other party, in my opinion. So, you know, with the Republicans, I think that, you know, one of the things that was a core belief, it seems, that with the Paul Ryan types was, you know, this deficit's a huge problem. And at some point, it was like someone who had cancer and was still fighting it, and they were a smoker. And then the, the day comes when they start smoking again is the day when it's over, and they know it's over, so they might as well have fun on the way out, right? Johnny Sack did that on The Sopranos. I, I get it, right? If you, if you feel like you're on the way out, you might as well enjoy yourself on the way out. It feels like the Republicans have given up on the debt, too. So now if a Democrat's in, they spend a lot. If Republicans in, they spend a lot, and the debt just keeps going up. On the other hand, 
it feels like the Democrats have moved towards more, you know, if they call it virtue signaling is a term you hear. But the idea in I think it's encapsulated by Hillary calling people deplorables. Right. Which is by definition saying you're wrong. You know, and she actually called them irredeemable, which is, you know, for religious people, a horrible concept. Right. Because, I mean, it's a basic tenet of the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic that you have confession and you can do penance and your sins are in the past. And you might think, oh, so I can do anything I want, you know, but the answer is it's got to be genuine. Now, who would know? Well, God would know. And if you don't believe in God, then all of it's a fugazi. So, you know, whatever. But to me, it's so practical. Just think about death row. You know, got a buddy and, and he worked, you know, he has been a sales guy here long, you know, one of the, uh, two sales people, um, Tom, right. A lot of people have heard that name before. Tom's married, got three kids now. So when he comes out to Vegas, especially if his brother comes out who I graduated with, he goes wild in Vegas. I mean, it's like he, he'll get bottles of wine at dinner, you know, like he's a pretty, you know, not conservative, but he's a pretty small town guy normally, but we call him death row Tom when he's in Vegas. <laughs> Because it's almost like he's gonna he's going to the chair in a couple of days, so the credit card bill doesn't matter. The you know five a.m. at the Rhino, it, none of it matters. It's death row Tom, and <laughs> it's a powerful concept because the you know death row is a scary place for the guards, and they they're under such lockdown because what do they have to lose, right? And to me, if you tell someone who's sinned that you can't redeem yourself, you're irredeemable, that you're someone that nothing you do will change, that you're less than, that we're judging you, then why do they have motivation, even if you believe that they're wrong, why would they have motivation to get better, to do better? You have none. Yeah. It's like if you're, if you're you know, actually, Trump, it's interesting. Trump, one of the great business lessons that he could teach, I believe, is he was, you know, again, I believe that a lot of his business moves were smart moves, that he had so many loans when he was almost bankrupt. And he never personally went bankrupt, but he had companies that did. That's the whole point of the corporate veil and companies, right? You can take risks. Everyone who participates in that company understands it's with the company, not with the individual. And that's why oftentimes with a small company, you have to co-sign it, you know, if you get a loan or whatever. Now you're personally on the hook. He hadn't co-signed, and he figured, well, I don't want to personally, I guess to some degree he was going to be ultimately possibly personally responsible, but he figured I have so much out that they've loaned me so much that I've got the power because if they go default, it's going to be massive to their books too, and thus they were motivated to work, uh, work you know, the debt down. So to me, the idea that if you know you're going bankrupt – what are you doing the last weekend before the Monday filing? Spend, spend, spend. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You don't, it took you five minutes to figure out who a Republican is, but you answered that instantly. You had that one figured out right from the go. And, right? I'm, and I'm thinking about, t about Tom's last trip to Vegas, and like, like, it's like early in the evening, and we're talking about something, and he's like, well, you got to go home now, Fez. <laughs> I, uh, we, I got one more thing I got to go over with some of the other folks. Death Thanks, Tom, Tom. baby. But the thing is that if you don't, if there's nothing to lose, 
You know, as Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And I believe that's a horrible thing. And, and I think with, you know, Twitter, obviously, and, and the irony of this is I think it's a wonderful thing to believe passionately about something. Like I, I can, I, I look at a, I'm not a super religious or I'm not a religious person, right? Meaning I'm not going to church on the weekends and I'm not like an angry Catholic or anything. It's just, you know, it's just to me, it feels like something, you know, I, it, hmm. I'm not even sure what I feel about it. Right. What I know is, is at times when I've had the most anguish, you know, like I can specific, uh, specifically remember, like with my grandmother, who was very close to me, she had can- pancreatic cancer, which is, you know, really bad. And those were the times I felt like I needed the help the most. And I think in general, that shows you the value of religion is, you know, the whole idea of, you know, literally dropping to your knees. You know, that's saying something. And if what that's saying is true, that you're that desperate, that you're that you're that in need of assistance, of help, then wow. Sounds like about the best thing in the world. The question is, you know, what's the cost? What's the transaction ultimately? And, you know, to me, I've never been able to reconcile that in a way that works for me. Now, that that could sound like I think I'm too smart for religion. Well, I know this. I'm not as smart as Bob Dylan, I promise. And Dylan had like a three and a half year born again period in his four in his early 40s. Between 79 and like 82, 83, you know, he did nothing but play gospel music and he wrote three gospel albums. And, you know, this is one of the greatest, if not, in my opinion, one of the handful greatest artists of the 20th century. I mean, Picasso, whatever, Hemingway. And he was more religious than I ever dreamt of being for multiple years. So it's not about that, I don't think. But, what I know is that if you believe in religion, if you believe in that the government can, you know, if you're a Bernie type that believes the government is your salvation or can be or can assist at least, I don't care. I don't think I agree with either or if, I know I don't agree with either of those extremes, but I think it's wonderful when someone feels it that passionately that they're willing to give something up. You know, that's one of the. I've never discussed this Dylan line, but he was getting interviewed once and you know, this was probably in the nineties, but he was not a kid, let's say. So he was in his forties plus. And they said, what do you think of the fact that people treat you like a religion? And Dylan said, huh? Cause I never really thought that was true. He goes, Tell, what are they giving up? And the interviewer was like, what? You know, he was confused. And he says, well, the premise of a religion is that you are accepting that there is some deity, some greater being that you're going to worship and that you're going to, that your value system, that your North star is going to be associated with their greatness. Right? So you think about a born again, Christian, the teachings of Jesus, that's the North star. Right? And what do you give up? Well, you might give up 10% of your money. You might give up the time it takes to go kneel at church. It might be the prayer. It might be that you're, 
denying yourself worldly pleasures because that's part of your religion. There's a, I mean, there is a lot of sacrifice yeah, in religion. I think that's a great word, sacrifice. I never thought of it that way, but that's, that certainly is the case, right? And it's a trade-off, though. The theory is you're getting more back. That's why people do it. Right? You're They're investing not- your time. You're investing your money. And your heart, right? And your, your heart. Your belief and, system. And you're restricting yourself and some of the things you may have wanted to do. For sure. And Dylan's saying, I, I don't care how great my music is or isn't, right? but he thinks it's great, and he's, he's right. He is saying, what are you giving up? Buying a ticket to come to my show isn't the answer. And it's a great point, right? And he's, he, he's explored this because ultimately, if it's with a relationship, you know, I mean, I can just speak with, you know, my wife is that, you know, when I was in my mid-30s and we had, you know, right before we met, I had no one to answer to. Never. And even although I had a bunch of, you know, seven, eight relationships that went, you know, between a year and two years and a lot of relationships, maybe five or six. And uh, six or seven. And the reality is that I tried to be sincere and I, I, I certainly wasn't like some duplicitous person, but... I wasn't willing to change for them. And with Mary, it was like, okay, this person's got more than I've seen. And you know what? When I'm honest in the middle of the night, you know, from that day's perspective, I don't have this all figured out. I'm not satisfied. And I want some of the things she's offering. But you know what? That comes at a cost. And, you know, one of Dylan's great songs from that period is you got to serve somebody. And that's a pretty popular song. But it says it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that is true. I don't know about the somebody part, but whatever it is, if it's your work, right? If it's being here for a podcast, if it's working out, whatever it is, there's very little you get in this world that you don't, it's not a transaction. And... The question is, are you getting the good end of the deal from your perspective? Not so much trying to get over on people, Fez, but you know, you're married, right? So that means, in theory, and I know in practice with you, you can't go bang some. Uh, if there's a Fez groupie out there, you can look, but you better not touch. Oh, there are just dozens of them, RJ, yes. Yeah, what's his name, though, is the question. <laughs> but, yeah, that's what I always told Mary is that all my groupies are like 240 pounds and have beards. But but the fact of the matter is that a marriage, now you have a kid, right? For a lot of people, that's the, one of the greatest, if not greatest, joy of their life. But, man, there's a cost to that. Financial, time, freedom. And some people just run and say, you know, a lot of abandoned kids in this world. They, they say, you know, we know I'm going to, that guy is pretty much saying, I'm going to hate myself silently the rest of my life, but it's better than this. So he, again, that's a transaction. And and I like that. I don't think I've ever heard the word transaction, that everything in life, every decision in many ways is a transaction. I think that's unique. Well, I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's the way I've always approached things. But, I mean, Annie Duke, uh, the poker player who's a professor, I think at Penn, wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. And you really think about it is there's an uncertainty and probability aspect to it. And there isn't there with everything in life, I guess, ultimately, you know, if you're going to like do us, 
you know, even if you're going to give your kidney up or something for your brother or whatever, the theory is you don't know if that kidney's going to take. I mean, these are all, you know, what are you getting? What are you giving? And what are the chances? And, you know, what I loved about that Annie Duke book, which I did read, oh. is how she tr- she did her best to try to give you what the answers were to most of the questions where she actually said, you might get the you might get this wrong. But if you play the hand this way and you do it this way, you know, it, it gives yourself the best chance to be right, and you don't have to second-guess yourself. No, and I'm happy you read that because, again, there's, you know, there's usually three or four books a year that break through when in Vegas, whereas the serious thinkers in Vegas are inclined. And I think at least being aware that the concepts are important because, you know, other people are, at minimum are considering them. You know, you may or may not agree with them, but it's good to know them. You know, as you say, you can't break the rules unless you know the rules. So to wrap, and, you know, it was fun to get off on a little tangent or a little, I don't think tangent is the right word. Uh, it kept spiring further away. But but to me, it's absurd that you don't know who Democrat or Republican <laughs> is. Honesty, RJ. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, maybe two on. No. Yeah. But... <laughs> But at least you got your love of the environment and, and the passion. And, you know, that's a transaction, but it's one you happily pay the toll. And I think to answer your question that you asked 15 minutes ago, if the Republican governor— Why, is- why are you so reticent about discussing your charitable works with the environment? <laughs> yeah, I'm not—for uh, a guy who hikes a lot, I don't do a lot to help the environment. <laughs> I mean, guys, can you believe that? He's so out of it. He can't. He can't follow the the gag that we had a month ago. I know. And the bighorn sheep need it. I mean, do you really not remember that, Steve? I remember it. So why did you just say that? I remember it now. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes, I've always found that when you do go off on, you know, let's call them tangents, that often it's very good and then when you try to figure out what it all means at the end is where it slows way down so i'm going to skip that part i think there was some interesting stuff in there and i hope the takeaways are that steve spends all his time on sports batting (laughs) one two that i ascribe to no political party and i hate hypocrisy i love freedom of expression and I believe that both parties feel like they're taking on some of the bad qualities of the other. And, man, I wish it was moving in the other direction. And I think you can totally disagree politically but not have to be okay with the hypocrisy. And to me, anyone, Rush Limbaugh, um, anyone from MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, whomever, left, right, if they never call BS on their own side, then it's almost like you don't need to hear them. Like if you, I always think the, the, the holy grail of being a brand, being a personality in media is when something happens and a chunk of your audience says, I can't wait to hear what so-and-so says about that. I'm anxious to hear what he thinks or she thinks. That's it. If you've got that, and then the other, the corollary to that is the whole in a segment, do they sit in the driveway letting the car run before they turn it off to walk inside? If you have segments that keep them in the driveway 
and you have a personality or a relationship with the audience that makes them want to hear on certain news events what you think, that's, that's, that's the mountaintop in both of those areas. And to me, the opposite of that is if you know what they're going to say. If you know that so-and-so is going to agree with the Republicans and so-and-so is going to agree with the Democrats, then you know what they're going to say, so it doesn't matter what they say. Right? All the de- it's all just details. And to me, I don't care if you agree 85% of the time. That's fine. You, my, your beliefs. But there better be 15% you say, hey, so-and-so, there, he's guilty. Come on. Maybe he shouldn't be. Or, you know, uh, you know, you know that's BS. I, it's like we all, you can't be a political junkie and follow it at all and not realize both parties have so much BS. And if you admit it, it frees you of it, right? It's your only two-party choices. I mean, you know, third parties are an option. I mean, I'm my ethos is certainly libertarian, right? Is but that said, I'm a huge believer about treating the company like or the com- the country like it's a company. Whereas if you watch The Wire, and obviously The Wire is a great TV show, but it's uh, it's not a documentary. It's not exactly the truth. Even documentaries aren't exactly the truth, but if you look at that documentary, it seems like a billion dollars, let's say, just one of these billion, if it was spent in West Baltimore, that it's possible that Marlowe would be running a food delivery co-op right now or a food delivery, forget co-op, but a food delivery company. And he could be like literally, you know, just passing 10 million in revenue. And, you know, Stringer Bell, Avon, I, I, somehow I want those kind of people working with us, not against us. And to me, if someone's got the guts to, you know, obviously it's criminal stuff, but if they got the guts to risk everything in order not to be on their knees in a way, uh, I love that. What I hate is the idea that, that they might have to. I don't know if they have to. I've never been a black person growing up in Baltimore or any inner city. And thus, I don't know how hard it would be to get out. It just seems like the numbers that do are small enough that it can't be easy. So you might think it sounds like a so, you know, some kind of social program to start you know, charter schools or something in the inner city. I believe that's just an investment. I believe we as a country and a company makes more ultimately. So if you're myopic about spending the money, that's boring. But if you're thinking of it like, what's our net win? If we, I like to win, right? What's the net win for the country? That's what I want to do. And then I want the country, the country out of the business of everyone unless their actions hurt other people. If you're doing something, if you're cooking meth in your house and it's going to blow up the block, then you shouldn't be cooking meth in the house. There should be a law against it. You should go to jail. And if you're not hurting people, now when it comes to legalizing hard drugs, I'm not sure where that line is. I, I know the theory is, you know, hey, why not? It's their life. I don't know. Right? There's some gray. But in general, stay out of people's lives unless they're hurting other people. And let's spend our money in a way that ultimately we're the strongest, richest country we can be. And it's funny. I'm not sure how someone disagrees with either of those. But you know what? Almost everyone does because Republicans or Democrats 
are going to not, you know, it feels contradict. Libertarians typically are a minority, a small minority, and I'm a minority within the libertarians because I am, you know, I would be willing to spend a lot of money socially if it was going to pay off. So that's been the McLaughlin group. <laughs> Fez, any, any closing thoughts? Well, I just think the country is becoming more libertarian because I can go out to dispensaries and buy my chocolate chip cookies with weed in them. And so I, you, you, is, is that what's causing your current state? No, I was always this way politically, I think. <laughs> well, how could you be any way politically when you don't know who's a Democrat and who's a Republican? I'm, I'm, I'm betting on sports, RJ. I'm gambling. I'm making money. But, but, but do you go to the dispensary? I went once because my wife sent me there. So to sleep with you, she has to get high. <laughs> I mean, you not drove, surprising. You drove her to drugs. Not surprising. I mean, listen. Just thank God she's not like you know running smack. I mean, <laughs> if you if you see any loose needles around, you know that maybe you know. Yeah, you, I'm just happy the cameras weren't on me when I was um, having the conversation with the uh, representative there on what I should purchase. Yes. Ah, oh, so w- wait a minute. You went down at her behest. Yes. Holy cow. It's like I, in order to stand our Friday night, you got to go get me something that's going to knock, pretty much knock me out. I'll see you when you get back. You got it. (laughs) What do you think of that, Matt? I think it's brilliant. (laughs) I'd like to be married to Steve. Her perspective? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, lowering the transaction costs. There you go. (laughs) Talk to you next week.